everyone, and welcome to Death by Adaptation, Clapper's monthly book club where we choose two books and compare them against their cinematic adaptations. I'm your host, Nicolo Grasso, and I'm joined as always by the great Yuan Gledo. And just when you're listening to this, it is the 26th of December. So, Merry Christmas, one day later, but whatever. Yeah. Merry uh, Christmas to everyone listening. A, a belated happy birthday to me as well. Oh. My birthday, technically yesterday, if you listen to this on the 26th. Oh, damn! Yeah, Christmas Are Day. Are you reading on the 25th? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, wow. The Grinch would have hated me. <laughs> a pure child of Christmas. Um, today we have, we have a, a, a jolly, jolly uh, holiday-themed double feature. We're, we're talking about Dr. Seuss, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and Mario puts us The Godfather, which, again, like we just keep on coming up with those wonderful, wonderful double features. And I'm, I'm so happy about this. I'm so happy. Again, n- none of this is actually planned. Like, we just randomly choose those films and books in advance. <laughs> but, you know, we're here to have a cracking good time. And let's get started with the classic How the Grinch Stole Christmas. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a greasy black peel. You're a monster, Mr. And Grinch. The, the, Dr. Seuss is one of those just legends of children's writing, children's books. Personally, I didn't grow up reading him. He's just not that big here in Italy. But I know he's incredibly popular in the UK, of course, since he's, he's British, if I'm not mistaken. No, he's American, actually. He's American, he's British. Uh, American, American. You get them uh, confused maybe with Roald Dahl, who was also the other children's writer that turned out to be a massive asshole, but did quite good books. Yeah, it's, I think I think they're almost like a mandatory reading of sorts in uh, in, in British in English speaking countries. It's like everyone has read at least one of those: either Charlie the Chocolate Factory, The Witches, oh, or yeah. uh, Cat in a... the Hat. Well, well, yeah, the first one's Roald Dahl, but Doctor Seuss I... is. Yeah. Go for it. I'd, I'd never read a Dr. Seuss until uh, this month. It's, it's It was a special occasion then. I don't think well, I have either, I actually. I don't think I have either. Because it's, again, like, no nothing ever pushed me to read, like, The Cat in the Hat or The Lorax or all of those. But easily the, the most famous one that is written is How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which is an incredibly short read. I mean, we're talking about barely over 60 pages long, children's book that has a lot of lovely, lovely pictures. Um, it's all in rhymes. The story is told entirely through rhymes, which is a classic trademark of uh, Dr. Seuss. And and it's delightful, I have to say. I, w- I was reading this. I read it in one go because, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy to do. I think it takes like a half, less than half an hour. Unless you have to reread some of the rhymes because it was actually kind of hard to read. So I was like, how many times is he saying, like, go, go, go? Just feast, 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 feast. Just five <laughs> times. It's just odd. He's actually saying it. But anyway, and it's it's a classic Christmas tale. It's very simple. You have the wonderful town of Whoville, 
populated by the Who's. These jolly, happy-go-lucky figures that just enjoy Christmas oh so much and they enjoy living life. And then you have the Grinch, who's this very angry asshole who hates Christmas, hates the Who's, hates life, pretty much, and is dead set on ruining everyone's Christmas. So he ends up dressing as Santa Claus, he uses his small little dog as a reindeer. <laughs> he goes to the town. He steals everyone's toys, everything, just every Christmas tree, every decoration. There's barely enough like crumb, crumbs for the for the rat to eat. Like he doesn't leave anything out there for anyone, and he's just happy with himself because he's actually ruined everyone's Christmas. But then, actually, no, he didn't. He didn't ruin Christmas. He didn't do anything bad, actually, because the spirit of Christmas isn't in the commercialization of it, in the toys, in the packages, in the experiences, but it's in the joy of just being together, in just being happy. That's the true spirit of Christmas, of celebrating this yearly occasion. And I think what's wonderful as well about this story is that it doesn't tie Christmas into any specific religion. It's a very a-religious narrative. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like you don't, you don't need to be a Christian or anything else to actually appreciate it. It's it's something you feel in your heart, and you know it's it's nice. It's very wholesome. Yeah, it, it's very nice and wholesome. I don't like that about Christmas. <laughs> I think very very much because it's my birthday on Christmas Day. It should all be about me. Um, Takes away it, the, the light. It, it does. You know, it's it's very difficult when you wake up at six in the morning to open your Christmas presents and then you do your Christmas breakfast. By by that time, everyone's a bit tired out and there's no room for birthday cake. <laughs> Um, I, I do think the nice message within How the Grinch Stole Christmas is that regardless of material wealth, you can have a good time at Christmas so long as you're surrounded by nice people. I've never bought into that. Um, I do quite like waking up Christmas morning and seeing that I do have vinyls and books under the tree rather than a loving family who are also present, but I do like <laughs> presents itself. Um, no, seriously though, it's it, it's a very short, nice book. I think the, the, the key to children's literature and I speak as a former child, um, is that, is that, that it connects with someone that isn't quite sure what a holiday or an event is. So Dr. Seuss, mm. you know, wrote for kids, he wrote for children. He simplifies it extraordinarily. And it's like you said, it's very irreligious. And I think that's primarily because it, he wrote for everyone, you know? And I, I say that without experiencing too much of his work. I'm kind of dependent on... Comparing him a little bit to Roald Dahl, because Roald Dahl did much the same, where it's you strip back the layers, you make it very simple, and you streamline it, and just mm -hmm. make it available and make it aware that children don't have to engage with it, but they don't understand it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a very jolly book, considering how the the leading protagonist is just a grumpy asshole for most of it. You know, and I and think it's... what really helps with that is the drawings themselves. Oh yeah. Because there's just there's just so detailed and the different faces that the Grinch makes in it, they're just unforgettable. It's just creepy. It's eerie. It just makes you feel dirty and afraid, like he's actually going to be behind you. Yeah, it's it's that kind of edge that's kind it of is, missing from from literature and children related media nowadays. Yeah. I think especially if you look back at like I mean I'm gonna go off course here, but if you look at like the '80s for children's entertainment, mm -hmm. specifically films like Labyrinth and The Dark Crystal. Okay. Terrifying, absolutely villainous. Um, the Grinch kind of follows that same avenue, where, or rather, it kind of started it, where it's mm -hmm. children's films have a bit of an edge to them, children's films have a bit of horror and shock to them. And you get that a lot. I know we're not 
comparing it to this one, but the Boris Karloff How the Grinch Stole Christmas from 1966 is the greatest example of that. Oh, it's just a so twisted, good. horrible face, but it's such a wholesome tradition. It's such a nice film. Yeah, I, I absolutely terrifying. It's it's so scary. That's the thing. Like in 1966, this is directed by Chuck Jones and Ben Washam, and Chuck Jones has directed dozens, maybe even hundreds of Looney Tunes cartoons. And I yeah, love he did, them. Um, He's made some of the best ones. He did some of the best ones. He did. What was it? Uh, the the very very popular one. <laughs> the Bugs Bunny and the Opera thing. Maybe. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Oh, he made Duck Mark. He made what's what's up Doc? What's Opera Doc? That's the one. That's the one. He did like the the top tier stuff, and then he was like, "All right, I'm going to do an adaptation of Doctor Seuss," which is great because it's like my actually no, I tell a lie. I have seen a Doctor Seuss film before, other than like the Cat and Hat and stuff, which is a great film. Um, There was a crossover between the Cat and Hat in the Grinch, um, and I'm just googling it now because it just sprung to mind. It came out in 1982, and I remember this because my pal said, "Oh, have you seen this?" And I watched it rather than revised for my exams. It was horrible. Um, it's like 25 minutes long, but it tries to have the same animation style as the 66 version. Okay. But it's uh, called The Grinch Grinches the Cat in the Hat. Uh, it was made in 1982. What? Um, I'm still not sure what it's meant to do. Um, oh, Jesus, it looks horrifying. But it's Bob Holt and Frank Welker in it who are like staples of voice acting. <laughs> Terrifying, and there's six musical numbers as well. So, it, uh, in the short span like of twenty-five Land. minutes, it's like it's, yeah. it's as much of a musical as La La Land is. But yes, to get back on point, though, my point was that uh, Doctor Seuss and sort of the animated variations of his work—they're very—they they have a very large longevity to them. Mm-hmm. They they've stuck around for so long. And it's especially true for How the Grinch Stole Christmas because that's been adapted countless times. That's yeah, that, that's a staple. How many of those adaptations have been successful? I'm not quite sure. I think uh, out of all the four I've seen, maybe one of them, <laughs> one in four, is good enough. Yes, and like the one from the 1966 is also notable for being the first color version of the story because originally the book oh. was in black and white, and so the Grinch didn't really have a color. And when they were making the TV, the cartoon, like 1966, color television started to become more and more popular. And so the, the television network told uh, Chuck Jones and Dr. Seuss, like, hey, we, we want this to be in color for everyone to enjoy properly. And so they were like, what color are we picking? Ah, I'm making green. And that's where the, like, the green Grinch yeah. came to be. And so much of what we connect to the Grinch's lore also comes from this cartoon because it has like, you know, his heart was two sizes too small and in the end it's three times as big, which I think is called an art attack sometimes. But, you know, <laughs> if you're feeling your heart grow three times as big, it's a, something's quite wrong there. But, but it's, oh, it's so nice. And you have banger songs. I think everyone knows You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch, which yeah. is... I, mm, I knew that from Home Alone. Yes. Like before I'd even seen How the Grinch Stole yes. Christmas. I knew the You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch, from when Macaulay Culkin's watching it on a telly. Like, that, right. that was my first influence of the Grinch. That was, like, where I first spotted it. Yeah. And then, obviously, you've got the Jim Carrey one, which was apparently literal torture for the man. He had to go through CIA training to wear the suit. <laughs> which is, in hindsight, rather funny. Yeah. It's, that it's, film was torture. 
It's yes, it's very fitting because uh, I didn't really want to watch it again, and we didn't, yeah, thankfully, no, no. because I was like, you know what? Let's just focus on the two main animated versions. It's because... kind of a nostalgic one for me, in in a sense that I've not actually seen it fully. It was just it's always on yeah. on telly. It's like I I am sure I have seen it all, but like in segments <laughs> across f- several years. Like I know I've seen the opening bit. I know I've seen Jim Carrey pull the funny face, and I know I've seen Jeffrey Tambor dressed as a who. And that's oh. all I really need to see. That's all I need to do to know that that is a two out of five. Yeah, it's it's nightmarish, which is weird. It's like it's directed by Ron Howard, but it seems like he's trying to pull out Tim Burton. Yeah, it. it's, it's, it's very like Ron Howard's a useless hack. <laughs> Let's really just get is. that one straight. It really is. Like he I... directs Hack Media, though. He directed the Da Vinci Code, which is just Dan Brown, isn't it? And then yeah, all three Other of them. Stole Christmas. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, he did all three of them. But what a trilogy! Tom Hanks did. I mean, I've seen Angels and Demons, and I've not seen the other two, so I'm I'm on a good innings. Oh, you're you're missing out, man! Inferno. <laughs> I, I remember I was meant to watch the Da Vinci Code once, and I managed to put it off, and it's been seven years now, Bless and you. I'm still just plugging on through. Never gonna watch it. Yeah, I was going through the top 100 box office movies of all time oh. from like box office mojo, and I was like, oh, Da Vinci Code, let's watch it. I've heard it's like bad fun, which is boring. I don't know if people can enjoy it. It's just plain boring. It's like two and a half hours and then Ian so, McKellen shows up. So long. Paul Bettany is just like destroying his back with a whip. I don't know what's going on in that film. It's weird. But but yeah, they're just cat in, like, not cat in the hat. <laughs> How <laughs> we should have done Christmas? cat in the hat. I'm, oh man, in the future maybe. Just I should have swapped out the Godfather. We could have talked about Mike Myers' magnum opus. <laughs> we could have had a Dr. Paul Seuss double feature. Oh, honestly. Jesus. But yeah, I mean... I think that that was weird. That was a weird time for for Dr. Seuss adaptations, if you could call it a time, where 2003 was like, we need to adapt mm-hmm. all of his works. We need to make sure that they're done live action. It's like, all right, yeah, go for it. And then they did The Grinch and the Cat in the Hat and then subsequently stopped for about eight years. And then they were like, this is sucks. <laughs> and I suppose it's because, you know, it, to be fair, in hindsight, they're not bad films. They're very mm. Tim Burton-y, both of them. And I guess the issue there is that the books are nothing like that. The original animation is nothing like that. Not mm-hmm. even The Grinch, Grinch is the Cat in the Hat is anything like that. For the 12 people that have seen The Grinch, Grinch is the Cat in the Hat, and you know who you are, you will know that it's nothing like Tim Burton. And it's... I suppose it's the, the, the cultural shift of the time, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. that whole zeitgeist buzzword thing that I hate to use. It's that is just a, a product of that was popular at that period. Exactly, just you know, following the trends. You look, you look at a lot of the stuff that actually was of quality, but is also nostalgic for my generation. Stuff like Coraline, mm, that yeah. very much is like a Tim Burtony type film. Mm-hmm. That, that pulls never, it off. Yeah, and it pulls it off well. Mm. The Grinch doesn't, and the offset of that is that we now just have boring, bland, very safe and procedural animated features that are just dribbled out by a studio. That's yeah. a shame. Yeah. And I, I think what's <clears throat> what's the main problem with wanting to do those adaptations of, like, feature adaptations of a Dr. Seuss book is that they're so short! There's no story! <laughs> There's, like, like Grinch is literally Grinch hates Christmas, steals the presents, oh, look, they're still happy the Who's are celebrating Christmas, and that's the whole meaning. It's like, oh, it doesn't have to be tied to objects, and that's it. That's the story. Yeah. We don't need a backstory. We don't need to go into the lives of the Who's. That's not what we need. We don't need 80 minutes, 90 minutes about that. 
that's what makes it work, and that's what makes the 1966 version work. Because it's yeah. like, yeah, it's it's taking every single scene and just lengthening it. So it's like, oh, in the opening, the Who's are happy and they're singing a wonderful little song, which is actually interesting because I was reading up like the words that they sing. Because it's like, what are they singing? It's like da budores, fa budores. I was like, what is that? And basically, when they were writing the lyrics, and Dr. Seuss helped write the lyrics for the songs, they were thinking of like ways to create this Christmas atmosphere. And they just looked at Latin, and they were like, well, we sing songs in Latin that kind of don't make sense if you don't know Latin. So let's just make up those words. <laughs> they just made up those words. Like, they kind of sound like another language. It's like, well, it, it works. It works. It just st- sticks, sticks in your head. Just, it's like... It's memorable. It's just the movie starts with that song. It just captures you instantly. And then every other scene is like, oh, the Grinch is preparing himself. So you have some quirky shenanigans with him and the dog dressing up. And you have the whole, like, him reaching the town on the sleigh. And that's a very funny sequence. This long montage of him stealing all the toys and presents. And you do reach, like, 25 minutes, I think, total with all of that. Yeah. And it, it works. It's like getting get out. Children can watch it. it. It fits well with the other like Christmas canon of animated shorts like the Charlie Brown Christmas, which is another special, I think, around 20 to 30 minutes long. It's like, yeah, that's, we, we need more of that nowadays. And instead, what we get is <laughs> The Grinch by Illumination Entertainment <sighs> in 2018. I, I, I don't know if you have... Any fond memories of watching Illumination films? You want? No, <laughs> none. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> no, I am. Um, so I, I was like twelve when Despicable Me came out. So mm. it was obviously the only film that the teachers at our primary and secondary school would show us. Um, so I, I, I can tell you a lot about Despicable Me one and two. Um, I remember being very ill with scarlet fever. Um, mm. I, I was flat out like bedridden and I remember watching Minions on my phone and I, I felt a little bit of me die. Um, <laughs> but I think that was more because of Illumination than anything else. I remember watching Sing. Sing in my first year of uni I watched because my flatmate had recommended it. And I sat and watched it and I it was dreadful. I think it's the only time I've ever used a swear word in a review. But that's because mm. my writing from three years ago was dog shit. However... I digress. I have no fond memories of any Illumination films. And I think that's, it's not because I wasn't the right age, because I was the right age for a few of them, like the Spirit mm. 1 and 2. Um, I think the issue is that there's there's nothing in them, that it's very empty. They might have, you know, Despicable Me, the first one, fair enough, it is it, it, a little bit funny. Gotta, gotta, gotta admit that one. Um, the issue is that they have nothing that would carry emotional weight. You look at the Iron Giant, you look at Toy Story, you look at mm. pretty much everything Pixar was doing at the time, yeah. and there's actual volume to what is happening in the story. What you don't have with Illumination is sort of that emotional tact. You don't have that, you know, realization of a, a bigger thing. Like, I mean, in, in the adaptation of The Grinch that they did, that message that Dr. Seuss has is there, but it's not presented as something that an audience should be expected to engage with. It's just mm. bright colours to distract children who probably just have very tired parents that just want an hour and a half of distraction. And that's fine. That serves its purpose. But it's no real statement to make. It's no real film, really. It's just sort of odds and ends loosely tied together. 
Yeah, I I, I feel kind of the same. Like I, I I don't I don't think I watched the Spiegel Me in the cinema when it came out, but I did watch it as soon as it came out on like DVD. I think we still have the DVD of that film. I've got the um, double pack, the Spiegel Me one and two, and it comes oof. with three minion shorts that I've just never watched because I'm scared. I feel like there's like a bajillion million sh- minion shorts. They're there like, is. There's they a, keep there's, um, milking them so yeah, hard. There's a sequel coming out as well to the Minions film. I hope John Hamm reprises his role. <laughs> I don't think he is. I know. I know. Steve Carell is coming back as little Gru. Young has he, Gru. Has he run out of money already? Has he? Oh yes. Oh no. Actually, like I'll probably post this on Twitter as well because I was looking at it the other day. Just the cast. Look at the cast for. I'll actually read it out loud for the dear listeners as well. But the cast for the Minions sequel, The Rise of Gru. You have Steve Carell, Russell Brand, Alan Arkin, Taraji P Henson, Jean Claude Van Damme. Lucy Lawless, <laughs> Dolph Lundgren, Danny Trejo, Michelle Yeoh, Julie Andrews, and Reza. <laughs> That's, I mean, I, I see they're doing what Sylvester Stallone did for everyone he casts in the Expendables trilogy. Yeah. But why? Why that list? Why Why Dolph Lundgren and Jean-Claude Van Damme? Why, <laughs> why Julie Andrews? Why Julie Andrews and they're bringing Danny Trejo? Ah, oh, Jesus, Jesus. But I, yeah, I, I honestly I think as a society, we failed when we made Despicable Me a massive success and not Megamind. Yeah. Oh, Imagine yeah. if we lived in a world where Megamind made the same money as Despicable Me, because I think they came out around not not just the same year, but just the same yeah, time yeah. or close to it. Megamind it was, was um, solid fun. I think the the issue there is that, and and it's the same for a lot of Illumination films. It's not just. Despicable Me, and I know mm. what you're going to bring up as soon as I've said this. Oh, uh, yeah, I was like, yeah. <laughs> this is they're, they're very commercialized and they're very marketable. So if you walk into a toy store or you walk into any sort of store, I mean, I went and did my Christmas shopping, the first thing I saw when I clocked to my right was a, a Minions jigsaw. It's like 500 pieces. It's like, that is oh, that is something made for the older generation to sort oh, that's, of that's for big boys. dribble away at when Scrabble gets boring. But it's so commercialized, and you look at things like if you go on Facebook, any forty-five-year-old woman has a Minions banner, and it's like, what? What do you think these things represent? Uh, they probably just think, ah, cute, funny, banana, that sort of thing. And it's, I, I don't get it. I, I just, and it I sounds think like I a joke, but it's real. Like I, I know people like real. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you get just people that send part. like when you could send stickers on Facebook Messenger. I would have someone that would send me banana. Like, haha, it's like, no, pack yourself in, give your head a shake, sort yourself out. And it's the the weird thing about it is that I think it's because I think you'll agree, because we're both of sound mind, is that we've got our head screwed on. We kind of engage with culture beyond, oh, cool, I can buy that for my kids, you know? Beyond fart joke. Yeah, exactly. So buy it. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, it's it's rough. And, And Illumination did already adapt one. One Doctor Seuss story they adapted the Lorax. I haven't oh, seen God, it. They did with um... I I have seen I have seen fifty different versions of the end song with different <laughs> effects applied to it. Like this was during my, my uni year in the UK. We're, we're talking about like one AM, two AM, just deep dive into YouTube with my flatmates. And we ended up watching like oh, every time they say let it grow, the pitch shifts lower. Yes, I remember when they got really popular, those sort of videos. They were great. They're, they're, they're disturbing as hell. So I know the final song of the Lorax. I haven't actually seen it. 
haven't <laughs> seen the film itself. Um, but they, you know, they, they were popular because of that. I think they also adapted maybe the elephant one. I don't even know the name of, of that. It was like another. Oh, oh, Horton hears a who. There, there you go. Yeah, that's yeah. I think my primary school teacher animation. had that poster up in their classroom, and the only reason I remember that film, I've not seen it. But I remember it because the poster is an elephant staring at what appears to be Jim Carrey, but as an animated ferret. It's um, <laughs> terrifying, honestly. And <laughs> the Lorax nice. is just as bad. I know Danny DeVito's in that film, but Ed oh. Helms is as well, and that's what's stopped me from watching it. I don't like Ed Helms. He's yeah. got a very punchable face. I don't like him in films. But, um, I'm sure he's a lovely to... guy, but I mean, just not a fan of him. Um, but no, it's got like... That cast for the Lorax is exactly what you'd expect of an Illumination film. It's got the old warhorse blockbuster veteran Danny DeVito. It's got up-and-coming comedians like Ed Helms and Rob Riggle. And then it's got mm. just personalities that will sell tickets and money and merch like Zac Efron, Taylor Swift. Like, you you know exactly what you're going to get when you do that. It's like casting Pharrell Williams in your film, like The Grinch does. Like the Grinch, and that's the that's the weirdest thing. I think also Illumination. This problem started already in the early two thousands, slowly but surely. After Aladdin became a success because of Robin Williams, yeah. but like Illumination loves to have big stars behind their projects. Oh yeah, and they keep on selling them. Like if you watch one of their trailers, they're always gonna put this this name of the actors first and foremost. Like the biggest, bigger than the, the actual types, like Benedict Cumberbatch, the Grinch. Yeah. And it's a practice that I'm not really a big fan of because we're talking about animation. You need an actor for the face. They can have, I mean, I want just to be just, you know, actors, popular actors can be good voice actors, of course. But there were just so many great ones. Like if you think about all the classic animated Disney films or even not by Disney, but just all the classics from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s. They didn't need the biggest stars of the time to just lend no, their voices. No. Dream, DreamWorks started it, you know, uh, Disney made it more popular, and then it just it's just the norm now. Like you're selling animated films for the stars, with the stars, which is just weird. And and watching The Grinch, their 2018 version, is just it's just pain. But just not even the good type of pain, because there's just some movies that are just horrible to watch, but you kind of enjoy suffering through them. I don't know if it even makes sense. But just this was it just does. It dull. It was just yeah. boring. Yeah. It's just four minutes of nothing. And it's not even a proper adaptation of The Grinch. Because if you think about The Grinch, even the, the 1966 short, yeah, like The Grinch is, is a creepy fucker. It's just it's this <laughs> massive grin when he concocts the plan. It's just this ear, literal ear to ear grin, and he's, you know he's up to do some bad things. You know he's gonna murder some children at night. He's probably gonna do some horrible heinous acts in the house. <laughs> Meanwhile, in this one, it's this literally is Despicable Me, the Christmas edition. Oh God, yeah, exactly like that. He acts like Gru. <laughs> he's just going around the city. He's just knocking over, I don't know, like a, a snowman for a child. He's not lending a, a, some jam to an elderly lady who cannot reach it in the grocery shop. He's kind of like, ha, 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 I'm just going to put it back for you. <laughs> so come, man. You're so mean. It's <laughs> like, ah, oh, Jesus, I don't know. I know what's um, happening here. Yeah, the Grinch is not good. And I think a lot of that is because... Illumination's animation style is not interesting. Mm. Not in the slightest. I mean, 
you, you think of stuff like Kubo and the Two Strings or anything Studio Ghibli has done. My God. So good. Beautiful. Even like stuff like Anomalisa, which isn't for children, but nonetheless looks stunning. Hen-crafted. And then you look at... Yeah, and you look at The Grinch with this edition and it's just so dull. There's no life in it. There's no spirit. And you can kind of tell that that's intentional. Mm-hmm. You can tell it is very much a mass-marketed product. And it's, you know, uh, you, you sent me that image of those pop figures earlier, and that that really did worry me. Yeah, just for reference, there's there's a shit ton of just toys, Funko Pops, uh, socks, t-shirts, sweaters, pajamas, cookies came out, just themed around the Grinch. Again, just bear with me for a second. We're talking about Dr. Seuss, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, a story that is all about you don't need toys and objects. Like, Christmas doesn't come in packages and bags. That's in the actual story. It's like, oh, that's the spirit of Christmas. It comes from within. And then you have an entire movie that adds scene after scene of cute characters, fun little animals, uh, the Grinch using the weirdest gadget just because they can sell a toy set. And I was yep. watching, it's like, oh, the Grinch has a ladder that just builds on its own. And he has a magical sleigh with an extra seat for the puppy. I was like, I can really see the toy. I didn't even have to look it up online. Yep. And then I went online and of course, of course there's a sleigh package. Of course there is. Of course there's all of those things. It's like, it's, it's I would even say horrible, <laughs> morally oh, wrong. It just just don't adapt the story. You can do the Lorax because that's about saving the planet. Okay, fine. Even though you're built, you're then creating plastic toys. But whatever, <laughs> whatever. But just the Grinch. It's, it's it goes completely against the theme of the movie. And even then, their whole their their movie itself doesn't really sell that narrative very well. Yeah, but that's the thing. They've got what like an hour and a half to fill. Inevitably, something will get lost in translations. It's a shame that it's the whole story. <laughs> um, it it essentially turns into like a series of pratfalls and a journey of self reflection, which the original, to its credit, is. But the self reflection is not that you need gifts at Christmas. It's that you just you can do shit things to shit people, and mm-hmm. eventually, it'll sort itself out. Which is a beautiful message to send to children. Um, <laughs> I don't know why half of the running time is taken up by finding that fat reindeer. I'm perplexed by that. Oh, Jesus, yeah. I imagine that is also because they looked at Frozen and saw Olaf and thought, we need a comedy character. Mm. And then Josh Gad wasn't available, so they just kept it mute. Um, And rightly so, Josh Gad has gone into bigger and better things, such as Artemis Fowl and an episode of Kirby Enthusiasm. Jesus. Yeah. I even but, think like it, it was even in an Illumination film. It's like I can see him being in like the I feel like Secret Life of Pets. Oh, I don't God, think he's no, he's not in that. Wasn't it? That was Illumination, yeah. Um, no, he's not in an Illumination film as of right now. Not yet. No, Scene Two is just around the corner, though. There's oh, what the when I when I type Josh Gad Illumination, I found a fan casting website where they want him to play a character from Wicked 
in an hypothetical illumination entertainment version. Yeah, of course it's theater kids that want them. They're, they're manic. They're horrible beasts. Musical. And they musical, love their Josh Gad. People that go, I, I will stand by this. People that go to the theater to see musicals should not be allowed to join the rest of society in anything we do. That's just a big no. Those people can stay with like Illumination Studios fans. They can go hand in hand. And they can do whatever they do. They can eat paste and watch the Grinch. That's that. I imagine that's what they do. Yeah. Um, they made Dear Evan Hansen a success. Oh, that's God. that's a crime enough in its own right. Why is Angela Lansbury in this? Why is ev- Why is anyone in this film? Well, money talks. I don't even uh, remember her honestly. Why did they get Pharrell Williams to narrate this film? Because it's is her buddy now. You know, Pharrell Williams is like ninety percent of the illumination. I think I think it became really, really freaking popular after Despicable Me because there was one of his songs. Oh in it yeah, he did just like the, the title track or something, didn't he? Yeah. He did like Despicable Me. And now they they've they've signed him to a lifelong deal. He's on You need retainer. our money and we need your success. And it's like oh, Well, oh. yeah. I mean it's it's mad to think that you know, I'm just looking at the budget here. It's 75 million to make the Grinch, and it made 511 million dollars. That is the spirit of Christmas. Hmm. Kubo and the Two Strings didn't even break even. <laughs> we don't deserve to live on this planet, you know. Oh God! Sometimes no, no. it's just. No. But I think it's it's through. the the irony of the Grinch doing so well is that it it defies what the original was all about. Is that commerciality is not the core of Christmas mm-hmm. yet. Eliminations have adapted it with that in mind to make money from its commercialization, and they've succeeded. So I don't know who's to blame them for making it that way, or the audiences for kind of lapping it up at Christmas. Because it's not as if there's a shortage of Christmas films. There's so many: Home Alone, Home Alone Two, Home Alone Three, three. (laughs) Home Alone Four, Home Alone: The Holiday Heist, Home Sweet Home Alone. I imagine there'll be another sequel. There was a television spin-off. I imagine there was a video game. On the PlayStation 2, I'm told. I didn't own one of those, because Christmas isn't about games consoles. Well, it was. I got a GameCube instead. But (laughs) it's not about material wealth. It's very much about family. That's all that matters. (laughs) Well, uh, money... And that's the weird thing as well here. They they add so much backstory because they know they... Like, what are you going to do? How do you even reach 84 minutes runtime with the original green story like already the, the short cartoon stretched everything to its maximum limit oh yeah that, and like, it got to 25 minutes 25 minutes was a stretch like if if you're adapting a book and it takes less time to read the book than it does to watch your film you have done something wrong there are very rare instances where i can think 40 50 pages kind of be adapted to a feature length adaptation it's mm. like i mean i know we'll talk about it in a moment but the godfather it's you got three films out of that and that's not even enough mm. um something like the grinch i don't get what the point of adapting it to a feature length is i obviously well obviously the point is money but for, from <laughs> an artistic standpoint from like an actual why would somebody want to see this why would why would why would an audience member that has no connection to Dr. Seuss want to watch this I I don't know I really don't it's like there's so many big names in that so I imagine to a degree that would be an appeal to an older audience but children probably don't know who Benedict Cumberbatch is they don't know who Rashida Jones is they don't watch Parks and Rec what are they getting out of that cast is what I don't get 
Mom, mom, it's Mog. <laughs> oh my god, everybody stop. Scarlet Estevez is on the cast. Little Timmy's gonna love it. <laughs> and that's also, uh, honestly, I, I, I don't even remember watching a trailer for this film. So it's oh, kind of I like, do. oh, well, you, you know, like, maybe Cumberbatch. He's British. He, 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 like, Gary Scarlet well, is British, and he pulled it off very well. So it's like, I'm excited to watch this one. British, but <laughs> he's not he, to me. He's, um, all he does these days is a shit American accent, and he gets loads of money for it. But, but that's a weird thing. Like, oh, well, if we're talking about like something of like Power of the Dog, which is a much better film than Grinch. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, Power of the Dog is an actual film. The Grinch barely qualifies as a motion picture. The, the Grinch so is walking a motion picture in, in the sense that it has moving pictures on the screen. On a purely um, technical level. <laughs> but it's, you know, it, it didn't surprise me that Danny Elfman did the score for this. Because he... They may have separated... I mean, obviously the Jim Carrey version has its faults where it just feels like a ripper for Tim Burton. Hmm. You can never escape Tim Burton, though. He will... or Him or one of his adversaries will crop up in your project. That's why Danny Elfman's there. He's there to, you know, firm hand on the tiller. He's guiding them through. Keep things real. Slapping people away from <laughs> originality. Get away from it. We've got to have this on the score. Uh, but speaking of, 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 um, of Benedict Cumberbatch... Um, I wish. Would, would, why did they have him be American in this one? I was just, I was just started to talk. I was like, "There's something weird um, in his voice." Like, oh, he has an American accent. Why? I can I get like... having everyone else be American. Fair enough. You could have had him have a different accent to make him even more of an outsider. He's British. Imagine... Let him be British. <laughs> his accent here was solely in preparation for Endgame. He just needed to warm up the vocal cords, you know, and get paid heftily for doing it. Um, I don't get films like this where it's like, you, you, I, every Illumination film, if you go on the Wikipedia, it'll mm. say it received mixed reviews from critics who praise the animation and the vocal performances. Oh, and and the the critics, I mean, we're critics. We're, we're as bad as the people that are listed on Wikipedia. They're praising the things that aren't changing, and subsequently mm. you're getting more of the same thing because Illumination is thinking, well, we've appeased the critics, we've appeased the audiences, we have to do no more than that. And you don't push them. You can't push mm -hmm. a studio because Illumination will essentially do this until it stops making money. And it won't stop making money. No, 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 no. We have seen two coming out soon. That looks like cancer. I haven't even seen the first one. I refuse. I'm like, I'm not watching any more Illumination I, uh... films. I'm done. Have you seen Have you seen the cast for Sing? First I, have. Yeah. I have. I have. Matthew uh, McConaughey's in it as well, right? Yeah, Matthew McConaughey's oh. the lead. You've got John C. Riley, Nick Offerman, Reese Witherspoon, Scarlett Johansson, Taron Egerton, mm. Seth MacFarlane for some bloody reason. He needs the money. Yeah. Well, he. Yeah, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Found the guy will one day end. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, and. Just watching this Grinch version, it's so like I didn't feel anything. We, and yeah. and the, the most annoying part is that you could have actually had something poignant and interesting, because mm -hmm. the the main differences are that first of all they've given a backstory to the Grinch, and the Grinch, which again this is an actual like classic problem of over-explaining things. Because in this one, it's like, oh, the Grinch was little in an orphanage, and they didn't celebrate Christmas at the orphanage. I was like, okay. But the problem is not that they're 
like they didn't celebrate Christmas. Fine, whatever. It's just that the orphanage is empty. Like there's literally <laughs> there's no one in the orphanage. It's like what? This child was just left on his own <laughs> in this massive <laughs> orphanage. There's not a single soul inside. And then he just starts roaming the streets and oh, he sees happy families celebrating Christmas. And now he's upset because he's there's a lot of no one's celebrating Christmas. It's like what? Where's the rest of the people? Show me a nasty freaking orphanage where they refuse <laughs> children Christmas. Give me something like that. Don't give me this freaking bullshit. I'm just oh no, he, he was alone in the orphanage and there was no one to celebrate Christmas. It's like, I don't believe it for a single second. It makes no sense. And then you have this poor Rashida Jones, who's probably like, she recorded everything in one day, I like to believe, because she's barely in this. And she's playing a, a, a single mother who has three children, two super young twins, and a little girl who's... Uh, uh, Sally who? Sally who? who? What's, what's the freaking name? Uh, Cindy Lou. Cindy Lou who? Who? <laughs> <laughs> and How to get one in the... You had. Well, you can afford at least five first Dr. Seuss <laughs> episodes. <laughs> I I should have my own merchandise line if the Grinch gets one. You should. It would just be a, a, an action figure of me and you pull a cord on the back like Woody and just go, Who? And that'd be it. It would just repeat that one line over and over. We could sell it for twenty nine ninety five. It would come with my headset and two broken wrists. I'd probably bring it up to work just to give me joy whenever I'm depressed. <laughs> People are like, I'm tired. They just put it up and goes, whoop. It's, like, yeah. it's a thing. I, I, I hate to defend the work of Jim Carrey. but uh, <laughs> Actually, I don't. I quite like Jim Carrey. But I, I mean, from what I remember of his Grinch in the spotted alcohol pickled brain that I have... <laughs> Is that at the very least there was the semblance of they're not trying to sell merchandise, they're genuinely mm. giving it an honest shot at adapting the film. I'll be with Howard behind the camera. It is a scary film. And it, it never quite loses sight of the message. The message that you don't need commercialization for Christmas, it's all about mm -hmm. family and singing in circles and around a big Christmas tree. Wouldn't have <laughs> songs. But yeah, it's even with the flaw. I mean, that film is flawed, mm. but it doesn't have the flaw of losing its message. So I kind of appreciate that. I appreciate that more now that I've seen the Benedict Cumberbatch version. I agree. Um, which I'd just like to call out Jack, our lovely editor, who gave it four stars, which is. <laughs> just I was reading the review earlier. I was like, Jesus, Jack. <laughs> I have a lot of respect for Jack. He was the man that pulled me in the clapper and he's done a lot for me. But that's unforgivable. And I, <laughs> it's just mad. Which is interesting because he hates Benedict Cumberbatch, but he actually liked him in this. And he hated him in The Power of the Dog. So I want all the movies to hate the man in. <laughs> What's probably going to get him his Oscar is the movie you hate. I think it's there's a few friends I've got that work in animation and I mm. showed them this film. They, they hated it. And I think they hated more because of what it stands for mm -hmm. as far as animation goes. Like, if if you're an animator and you're up and coming in the sort of remit of animated features, and you see that and how much money it's made compared to something that you're passionate about, you know, I, I think of things like Where the Wind Blows or The Red Turtle, stuff like that. And you mm. look at the budget and you look at the, the, the production value and it's amazing and it's very vibrant, it's very colourful. It has the implication of a message and tone and style makes sod all compared to the Grinch and the Lorax and Sing and that must be so debilitating you know like uh, the only animated films I can think of that do make money that are kind of unique are the Lego movies 
and even then they've started to be processed. You know, we've got the Ninjago one, you've got I think that's getting a sequel, you've got the Batman one, stuff like that. It's and it's even then it's relying on the same styles of a big name actor that is also a Marvel movie star, hmm. brushing shoulders with legendary actors like Angela Lansbury and Morgan Freeman for the Lego movie, and it's it is, and I, 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 my heart goes out of them. My heart doesn't go twice in size, though, because, you know, it just doesn't do that. You know, I, I think the Grinch should get that looked at, though, because I googled it, and apparently it's it's a symptom of postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Um, so I would get that checked out, Mr. It's probably, Grinch. He's probably dead on the 26th. He's know. dead! His last moment of joy, just singing in the circle, and then he just dies. <laughs> after the His whole heart after... implodes. <laughs> He's so happy, he just dies. <laughs> like he ate the rare Who beast. And That's the sequel of to the time. Jim Carrey version. It's just Jim Carrey starred flat out on the floor, <laughs> clutching his heart. And it's like, and the Grinch died a happy Grinch because he was happy and loved. Loved so much that his heart failed. Uh, that's the Christmas spirit, though, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> heart and, fail. And especially, like, to close off with just the depressing thing is that you were mentioning like the whole of the, the the animators hating the scene. And that's the other problem of anime of illumination is that it feels so cheap at the same yeah. time so expensive because you can oh, feel it's, it's rushed. Like the, the gloss over it all. It looks very like sheeny. Oh, and this like they made all of all of it in 2018, which oh. is insane. They cast and also it's funny. I was reading after that they did cast Benedict Cumberbatch and they wanted him to voice it in his natural accent. But Cumberbatch was the one who said, well, since the others are only Americans, maybe the Grinch should be American too. So yeah, really Cumberbatch, this one. <laughs> he lost a lot of points because of that. So I'm not blaming Illumination, no, I'm blaming Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, but that's the thing, they, it, it took them less than a year. Like, they cast the other actors in, like, September or something, and the movie came out in November. That's mad. Um, and and it's, the, that's they, cast Benedict, they cast Benedict Cumberbatch in, like, late 2016. And it was like one of the first people attached to the project. So consider that 2016, the movie came out in 2018, where they cast a lot of people in 2018. Meanwhile, the 1966 version took from 11 to 14 months to make. And it's only 25 minutes long. And they have to reuse a lot of the same footage (laughs) because it was really hard to animate. But bless them. They tried. Bless them. Yeah, exactly. And it's... I mean, the argument people are going to make against that is that, oh, well, it's the, the magic of technology that we can do that. Technology is not magic in that instance. It's it's machine-made no. at that point. And I, I hate to be that little stickler for, oh, we should always hand-animate. I don't think we should. You can make beautiful films with technology. You know, you look at Toy Story. Well, in hindsight, <laughs> Toy Story looks like shit. But at it's the, the time. memories. At the time, it looked great. And it's the memories you associate with a film that are going to strengthen it more often than not. And yeah. it's... I, I, if if I were a kid, th- like I, I don't think I'd be able to attach anything to this version of the Grinch. Mm-hmm. Like even even though I can recognise that Jim Carrey's Grinch version is not a good film, I yep. still have some memories of it. I still remember quite fondly sitting down to watch it on Christmas Eve, and like, well, I don't remember it because you know, oh, bit of drink, <coughs> but it's it, it's it's the thought of a memory. <laughs> but even That's then, what the, counts. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, I can't think a, a, a kid that grew up with this version of the Grinch would look back on this twenty years from now and think, "What a fond time I had with that." I especially liked it when I bought the merchandise. 
well, you'd be surprised. I was reading up some reviews yeah. of people who've given it like 4.5 stars and they're watching it every year now and they're like, this is a new classic for me. It just makes me so emotional. And you know what? If it makes you emotional, I'm I'm also yeah. happy for you. I'm just so happy for you. Yeah, but um, then you've got to question the, the emotional intelligence of such an individual. Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I there was someone on the film studies course at my old uni that hmm. The Grinch was one of their favourite films. And I thought, they're thankfully not going to go anywhere in film. But by God, that is worrying if that's your favourite film. Um, I remember it, I, actually a fun little fact before we move on to the whole favourite character thing. Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure The Grinch was one of the first 4K releases. Was it, it really? was, um Yeah, because it was released around the time of 4K sort of like, oh, look at this new shiny shiny, we're going to out, out, outweigh Blu-ray. Well, didn't really happen but it was because of just the timing of it where it's like it's a christmas film nothing else has been printed properly yet and they'd shot it quick enough that they could just turn it into 4k they just remaster it very easily it was one of the first to come out i'm pretty sure jesus it's like they only just got around to doing bloody home alone so <laughs> i don't have a 4k player my eyes are screwed as is i can barely see dvd quality anymore it's not even like you can actually tell the difference that much I think it's only exactly. in the dark scenes. That's that's what they've noticed so far. Like when I play 4K videos or whatever, it's just when it's dark, it's actually it's it actually looks alright. Yeah, I suppose that's the ideal place to watch a 4K film. Is like that, you know. If you're going to watch a 4K film, it's probably at the cinema. I mean, the, the cinemas near me don't actually have 4K yet. Um, <laughs> they don't actually. That's the thing. They have like 2K oh, yeah, players. No. Yeah, yeah, that's what I discovered recently. It was like a lot of the DCPs, like the digital cinema package, the digital version that's shown in cinemas. A lot of them aren't even 4K. It's like 2K. It's like, like a oh. Blu-ray player that upscales DVDs. It's pretty much. <laughs> I mean, you're going for the sound. That's 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 it at the end. Yeah, but I've got tinnitus, so I don't really go for the sound either. <laughs> I'm going to sit in the dark while a man stuffs plastic straws into his pocket, forgets he's got them in his pocket because he wanted to take them home, and just snaps them all in half when he sits down. I saw House of Gucci and Ghostbusters Afterlife in one day, and I've never heard of the day more in my entire life. I had, Sounds like a loud day as well. I had nine hours to kill that day. I fell asleep in House of Gucci almost. It was The seats were very comfortable, and I was very cold. I had my jacket on. I had this coat on, actually. The movie does seem very quiet as well. Like It doesn't seem like the most exciting yeah. watch. There was nothing. I think that's why I appreciate Chris Nolan. Is that if a loud noise goes off, you you fucking well know there's a loud noise going off. <laughs> this, this, yeah. this was my problem during Dune. I was like, I want oh, to fall asleep God. right now, but it's like Hans Zimmer is preventing that. But, <laughs> but yeah, just in just to close it off, just the Grinch, the oh. 1966 version, lovely, and you can watch Life. it three times, and it's still shorter than the sure Illumination on, version. It's on YouTube as well. Yes. Because of course it is. You can watch so, anyway. was, uh, so was the Grinch out Grinch's the Cat in the Hat, or whatever it was called. That's also on there. You can double build that. Watch it, I'll watch it as soon as we're done with this. I'll actually, I'll actually give it a shot. It's like five minutes, maybe. My Until friend sent me a link to it. And, like, the, the friend that showed me it the first time around said, oh, can you review it? And I was like, if you give me like a tenner. Coming soon on Cold Following. <laughs> <laughs> well... You'd be surprised. I'm I'm scheduling a whole month of content in like three weeks because I've, you know, the 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 roof of my office is now back on, rather than off in the ocean. Unfortunately, unfortunately, they've been yeah. too effective fixing that. They, I can't believe how quickly they fixed that. It's like the Grinch 
gathered all the little who's up and he just stapled them to the roof. Just <laughs> straight in. Nice. That's how I knew Grinch is born. Ah, no. <laughs> don't, don't, because there'll be a sequel. There will. They'll be. They'll adapt the Grinch out. Grinch is the cat in the hat. Benedict Cumberbatch and Mike Myers reprising their roles. I'm I'm shocked they haven't made the cat in the hat yet. Yeah, it Genuinely feels like shocked. a natural progression. It's it's, it's inevitable. Yeah. Let me just quickly Google that because it's it has to be like <laughs> that's see, the thing. For... They announced the Grinch back in 2013. Yeah. The announcement, of course, they didn't actually. Remember. I imagine they'll have just bulk bought the rights to Doctor Seuss. Because if they've got the Lorax and they've got the Grinch, you know. Ah. The Illumination adaptation of the Cat in the Hat was permanently cancelled. Oh. Why? Bring it back. There were plans for a computer animated version after the Lorax was a success. And they were supposed to release it in 2012. There's even a 3D version. (laughs) Define the word success. Oh man! Oh. All the sweet, sweet money, uh, dollar, dollar bills. But yeah. anyway, <laughs> let's let's close the Grinch segment off with our favorite really? character and favorite moment. Hour. After all, we can go longer if you want. <laughs> yes, of course. Let's talk about the intricacies of his personality. No, God, no. All um, the subplots in the 2018 movie when yes, they go around to as, find the uh, fat elf, elk. <laughs> it's just the reindeer, whatever. It's just ah. Oh. And there's a goat who makes the horrible noise because, of course, you need the stupid goat who makes a horrible, hideous noise. Jesus. I was, I was, that, that's when I got upset. I was like, how are they going to stretch this movie? Oh, they go on an adventure and make a new friend who's gonna come I, back in the climax because he was kind. I like Enough. the bit where they have a flashback scene that's trying to make us feel sorry for the Grinch and immediately follow that up with the Grinch committing theft. I particularly like that clash of comparisons. Uh, Delightful Jesus. stuff. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so keeping in, keeping in the spirit of Christmas, you know. <laughs> but uh, I'll just kick this off because might as well. But just... I mean, it's not like there's as many characters. But I will say this. Like, the Grinch in the book is very fun to look at. Yeah. But oh, yeah. In, the, in the 1966 version, I actually really liked Max, the dog. Oh, because it's it's it, it's okay. It's it's a cute animal, first and foremost. But I just really like the chase scene. That's in that. <laughs> well, well, not chase scene, but like when they're just falling down the hill, going to the city of Whoville. Yeah, and they're just it's the dog is on the sleigh. It's trying to to carry the entire sleigh down, but it's just <laughs> too small. And it just falls underneath and he's on top of it, and he just has this mug look on his face. I was just watching. I was like, you know what? This is actually super fun and cute. I'm like, yeah. bless you. And I honestly have nothing good to say about the 2018 version. I was like, there's not a single character I like. I actually, if anything, I kind of feel sorry for the Grinch because the Who's are annoying as hell and very oh, God, creepy. Yeah. They start following him around, singing Christmas carols. It's like that's that's scary. <laughs> that's like a horror film. It's... God rest you, merry gentlemen. Is like fits prop fits really well in a slasher film. Who's like, like the wicker very man. gentle? Yes. <laughs> we're going to burn him in a giant effigy for a good harvest. That's what they're doing. Singing around in the circle. That's the. B- <laughs> Look, mommy, it's a star. It's just the green screaming. Ah! Oh, man. Oh, that's like a great. That could be a, a great um, drawing. If someone wants to make that fan art of just the Grinch in the, in the wicker man. <laughs> 
<laughs> go for it. <laughs> oh god. Send it to us at deathbyadaptation at gmail.com on the, oh, on the social media. Anyway, go ahead, Ewan. Oh, God, with what? Favourite character from this? <laughs> There's so many to choose from. <laughs> oh, wow, you've got the store clerk, played by Michael Beattie, whose one mm. salvation in this is that he doesn't speak much. Uh, I, I, is there a character in this that is like salvageable in any way? Oh, it, there's the best friend of the Grinch, who's this very annoying, loud man who wants to hug him constantly. And then at the end, he's like, oh, the Grinch is my best friend. It's like, is where? That, uh, what's his name? Bricklebomb. Is that know. what his name is? Keenan Thompson's character. It's the, Oh, no, I, that's the guy he still, steals the sleigh from. Bricklebomb, yes. <laughs> he's like the Ned Flanders of the Grinch universe. Yeah... Yeah. I think I'll I'll take Bricklebomb, mainly because I can't remember what Bricklebomb looks like, and I don't remember a single line of dialogue that was spoken by him. So he must have been the least offensive character. It I remember saying a lot. I remember the Grinch waking up to that really shit remake of the song. Oh, oh, that ah. face that that speaks a thousand words. Pain. Oh, I feel it. I remember. It. I forgot about that. But yes, they have a yeah. remixed hip hop version. Of your mean one, Mister Grinch, like uh, really early on. That's when you know you're in a. In yeah, shit I mean time. it's it's Tyler the Creator, so you know he got money. Oh, so he got he got a good pay, of course. Uh, just, you can't improve on the classics. In rare cases, you can, but that you know you can't do much with twenty five minutes of material at nope. most. No, nope. you can't make that ninety. Sure it's like me when I was writing that Great Expectations feature. I got 400 words in and I thought, oh my god, what am I going to do here? Uh, I sent it in really late. And you, honestly, you did the best you could with that. Oh, All things considered. I just I, I do not know what to say about that. The same for the cringe. I guess Bricklebomb. I'm going to Google what it looks like, actually. Bricklebomb. I recommend oh, listeners to Oh, no, well. not that prick. No, <laughs> no, you remember who he is. Oh... <laughs> to come in at that. He's such an asshole. He looks like the character Josh Gad should have played. That's it. I, I kept thinking he was going to be someone popular, role. actually. But it's like, no. <laughs> someone popular. Keenan Thompson. It's like Keenan Thompson. Is, it's not that popular. Uh, Nothing yeah, against the guy. But, you know. The good thing about Keenan Thompson, though, is that he's actually talented, which is odd why, why he's in the Grinch. Um, he's I'll also in with, Trolls World Tour. I'll go with the narrator, because Pharrell Williams uh, did that song, Get Lucky. Like yeah. seven or eight years ago, and I did quite like that song. Yeah, they should have put that in the Grinch. They should have. Yeah, it would have made. He's sense. up all night to get some. <laughs> He's, He's up, up all, all night, night to get, get Grinchy. There you go. <laughs> get Grinchy. Yeah, perfect. It's it's what the people want, and what the people want is Pharrell Williams on every soundtrack of every movie. It's like when Bruno Mars was popular. What was that song he did? Grenade. Oh. I don't even remember. Every primary school Christmas party, we we had two CDs. We had the best of Phil Collins, and we had now that's what I call music, which had grenade on it. Um, so it was a mixture of Katy Perry, Bruno Mars, and Phil Collins. You can't hurry, love, over and over again. It was demented. It was still a lot better than The Grinch, but I, I'm gonna say something very weird. I'm just listening to Grenade right now. Oh god! And then no, putting it in that. the background for for listeners as well, just for reference. I don't think I've ever heard this song. 
Really? Which oh. has like a literally a billion views on YouTube. It's um, it it did not stop when I was at school. What did you have to call it? Like 2011 or something? It was like uh, maybe just 2010. Yeah. Yeah, this oh is the God. beauty of living in a bubble of another country. Like, <laughs> I wish just I some song just never comes. It's why I'm moving to a different part of the country to get away from Bruno Mars. <laughs> Your nemesis. <laughs> Seven months to go until I'm, I'm away. Oh man. But the real question is, are you going to be far away enough from ABBA fans? No, because they're everywhere. They put a wasp on my train and I got stung in the neck. They took the food out of Tesco. Jeez. More recently... A conspiracy. <laughs> I, I'm convinced they're trying to kill me. Like... It's it's the Bob Dylan fans now as well. I've I've really annoyed them. I, I said his album was all right. Like I think it was like just I think it was uh yeah, his Christmas album. I said it's not very good. But two thousand views, two thousand angry Bob Dylan fans. It's um well, you know I don't no, I don't no one's like, gonna read the positive reviews, you know. Well I But they're gonna find the bad ones. <laughs> it was what I was taught in journalism very early on from a course, it was if you're getting comments from people, the chances are it's negativity. But that does mean you're doing something right. So, but speaking of, of you know classics that never go old, classics that never die, and that you know actually classics that can be improved. You're not leading into ABBA, are you? I well, of course. <laughs> Let's talk about Mama Mia. <laughs> no. I've actually, you know what? I've... <laughs> I'll def- I watched Mamma Mia the first one recently. Um, I've seen that film about 12 times and I've oh, not Jesus. seen it sober yet. <laughs> I was shit-faced. I bought a £2 <laughs> bottle of Books Fizz, which is like orange champagne. Just out the bottle, drinking that, watching it on Netflix, great time. Wow. That's probably oh. the best way to enjoy it. But no, actually, It's the only way to enjoy it. <laughs> it's the only way. <laughs> We're actually talking about The Godfather. The classic ah, yes. Godfather. This one time. This one time I let you ask me about my affairs. Why don't you introduce Mario Puzo's classic novel? It's it's a difficult one to introduce because I think a lot of people already know the story of the Godfather. It's about the Don Corleone and his family, the Corleones. They're a mafia gang that, well, not even a gang, they're a mob. Even the mob's not right. It's a family business that sells olive oil, essentially. Um, And they just dabble (laughs) in respectable business. It's a respectable family led business. Um, No, so, I mean, the, the Godfather is essentially um, 
the head honcho, the Don, the man that everybody respects and loves and fears, taken out of action. It's up to his three sons to pick up the pieces and sort of formulate a plan. And it's and it's not until I read the book that I realized how expensive the Godfather is. Mm. It's it takes it place over a decade. A whole ten years passes by, and he never get that feeling with the Coppola film. Uh, who directed this? And I think it was nineteen seventy one, The Godfather. Seventy two, yeah. Seventy two, seventy one. That's all I say. It's all the seventies. It's all ancient history now, just like <laughs> ever. Um, yeah. So I think the, the the stunning thing about the Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola versions is that there are very few differences. Mm-hmm. They are incredibly similar. And usually you get a, a, a book, and we've spoken about loads. Well, not loads, but we, we will speak about loads of books. Quite a few right now. <laughs> Some of the, the books we've spoken about, like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, there is a lot on the director to take artistic leniency, shall we say, where they change something that they don't quite like. Mm-hmm. You don't get that feeling with Coppola. Um, if anything, he's left a lot on the cutting room floor because trying to cram The Godfather into a three-hour film is incredibly difficult. Yeah. I remember when, when I first started in film journalism, which is like, Jesus, like five years ago? Yeah. Um, that, to be fair, anything I've written beyond last year is dreadful. <laughs> but when I actually started out, one of the first reviews I did was of The Godfather, and I said it wasn't very good because I was an idiot and I was like 16. Um, what I've noticed on re-watching it, because I, I hadn't watched it since sober uh, until I watched it for this podcast. I remember watching it at a friend's house a couple of years back. It was We had a barbecue in April and it snowed. Uh, we went inside and we had our burgers and we watched The Godfather. Hmm. And I remember watching it there and I was like, "This is there is something about this film, but I don't think it lies in the film. And it was, I read the book and I've, I'm surprised at how much it moved me and how much it was inspiring and how creative it was. There are, there are lines in that book that are so simple Yet it's it's the simplicity that really sells The Godfather, especially the writing of it. It's very matter of fact. It's very straight shooting, mm-hmm. and it's just profound. Oddly enough, it's like the impact that simplicity has on The Godfather is, and on the audience as well, is that it it has a commendable respectability to it. Not because it tries like to be fruity with its word. It's very straight shooting, and it's like the Don Corleone character himself. Mm-hmm. It's very much clear cut doesn't give a shit this is how it is and i like that i dislike that about the fans of the film who have taken it as gospel and love it dearly however we all have our vices and i i now at least understand why people say it's the greatest film of all time i don't think it is i think it's it's pretty far off it's it, it definitely be in like the top hundred if you really push me if you put a gun to my head i'd probably just ask you to pull the trigger i have no time for top hundreds but if, if I did have to put one together, The Godfather's going to be somewhere around like 50, 60. Nice. But I, think, I don't think it's the film that did that for me. I think it's the book and then mm. re-watching the film afterwards. I mean, I just finished the second one today and it's like, it's just incredible what you what the book and the film have in common. Obviously the title, but the actual sustenance of it, it's so similar. It's so genuinely exciting. I, I hope you felt the same way, otherwise I'm going to look like a tit. Well, uh, if listeners haven't already, like I recommend you go to the to the Clappers Patreon, subscribe to it, because there's a dozen, dozens of podcasts that we recorded just for Patreons. And one of those was actually a top 100. Like, oh, yes. Where it was yeah. me, the good Jack Luke Sharp, Jakob Flash, and Carson Timar. And we talked about our top 100 movies. 
And small spoiler for that list, but The Godfather was in my top five. Um, I love The Godfather. Um, I actually watched it the first time back in 2010, 2011. Because it's it's always something, I mean, you know, everyone knows that I'm, I'm Italian. Um, the mafia is a very big thing here. It's it's hard not to avoid in popular media just in general when it comes to this country. That's what we're most famous for in the end. It's pizza and Super Mario and, um, and Jared Leto. And, and basically, in uh, The Godfather, I, I remember having the DVD of the film in my house. And I just kept on looking in the bag and it was just a picture of the family at the wedding party. I was kind of like, I want to watch this movie. And my parents kept saying, when you're older, when you're older. And apparently, at 11 years old, I was old enough to, to watch the film, 11, 12 years old. <laughs> and so I sat down with my dad to watch it. And this was genuinely one of the most just mind-blowing cin- cinematic experiences of my life. I was just blown away by it, which is so weird because like nowadays, when you're thinking of like 13-year-olds watching something like The Godfather, it's almost like, what the hell? Like, no one's going to do that. Like, people think a 20-year-old watching Citizen Kane is insane. Like, how are they going to appreciate it? But weirdly enough, I just loved it. I connected with it. I was into it. I definitely didn't get all of it because, I mean, it's a a heavy story. Like, there's a lot going on in this. But it was engaging. It was exciting. It was tragic. There was just a lot going on. And I loved it so much that I actually found out, like, oh, we actually have the book as well. And I read it, I think, in like, yeah, 2012, 2013 at the, at the top, like max, 2014 at the latest. And I did really like it. I completely agree with what you said. There's, there's very few differences. If anything, the novel is more of an extended version of the film. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily for the better at times, but we'll get into that. <laughs> because, Jesus, there's some parts. But, but just in general, I think the strength of the adaptation is that Mario Puzo himself actually co-wrote the script yes. with yeah. uh, Coppola. He, he co-wrote all, like, they both wrote all three versions of the Godfather, Godfather Part 1, Part 2, Part 3. So much so that they were actually thinking of it, maybe even doing a Godfather Part 4. Where they were going to follow the Andy Garcia character from the third movie, only that Mario Puzo unfortunately passed away in the late 90s, and so that never came to be. Probably for the better again. <laughs> Because yeah, I, well, I mean, you, you look at Godfather three, and ugh. I mean, I love the film, but it's like that's that's the end. That's, we don't need more. We don't remember, need I, more. You know what? Yeah, I, I did some like research. The Walking Dead. <laughs> oh God, Jesus! Uh, yeah, I did, I, for the once I did research. Hey. I, I never write notes, and I haven't for this, but I've remembered this one, and it was that the the big thing about the Godfather two to three was that they were setting up for a big fallout between Tom Hagen, who's played by. Um, mm. Richard, Robert Richard, Duvall. Robert Duvall, that's the one. I'd get him mixed up with Richard Dreyfus for some reason. I think it's because they're both bald. Um, <laughs> and Michael Corleone is played by Al Pacino. That was meant to be the big thing for Godfather 3. Mm. But then uh, Robert Duvall was allegedly not paid enough and he didn't appear. Which is a shame, because when you think so about big. it, and especially when you think about the the reflection of the two in the book, where mm. Tom Hagen is the non-Sicilian concierge, which is unheard of at the time, and he's not a wartime concierge, and it's stuff like that. It's fantastic. And it's included in The Godfather Part 1 and 2, where it's like, that is very much one of the underlying issues. It's never really spoken of, but mm. it's spoken to and spoken about. And it's it's stuff like that, those little details that need to be sort of harvested much later on, 
that don't come into fruition, where with the benefit of a book, you don't have to sort out the casting. Um, so for something like The Godfather, like you said, it's the extended edition of The Godfather, really. It's like the director's cut before there was even a director's cut available. Um, Pretty much, yeah. Very long-winded in parts. Um, a lot of The Godfather book depends on how much you like Puzo's writing, and this mm-hmm. is my first Puzo book. I loved it. Absolutely, probably one of my favourite books. Loved it. Dearly, dearly enjoyed it. Um, and I think a lot of that was because of how well he incorporates ensemble. It's mm. it's phenomenal how well he does with so many different characters. You know, you've got the 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 grim and gritty murder that Michael takes out on. I think his name's Salvatore, Salvador, something like that. Mm-hmm. The um the Turkish guy that essentially sets off the five families <laughs> war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And the police captain whose name escapes me. Um, but you've got that bit. McCluskey, that's the one. Played by the great Sterling Hayden. (laughs) But yes, you've got that bit. And at the same time as that going on, he's like, he finishes that chapter. It's like, oh my God, Michael's off to Sicily. What's he going to do? You've got to wait like four chapters to get to that realization because he wants to spend two more with Johnny Fontaine. Um, (laughs) Everyone's favorite character. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. um, I kind of like the early Johnny Fontaine stuff. Just to touch on that briefly, I like it because it's the the Tom Hagen scene when he meets with the big film producer and the horse head in the bed type thing. That's now iconic as as a scene. Mm-hmm. Um, the build up in the book is a bit confused. It doesn't really like nail down. It's like and then there was a horse's head in his bed. Doesn't need to. It's it's the actual fall from grace that Fontaine has and then his rise to the top again. And it's like you're just charting his career essentially. And I think that's the bit. Uh, the ghoulish person within me that, you know, writes for tabloid newspapers coming out where it's like, ah, I write for the Daily Star. That's that's like writing about Johnny Fontaine. It's probably <laughs> what I'd be expected to do. Nonetheless, the, the reason I liked it was because you're charting one man's rise to success. He hits what he wants and inevitably realise he doesn't really want it. Um, that's such a tested formula, but I think what Puzo does with it is just, again, it's, it's his style, it's his prose of just clear-cut, very simple... Very, he doesn't use fluffy writing, he doesn't sort of dance around the issue at heart, you just cut straight into it. And what you get is a very brevity taken book. You have 400 odd pages, and it's a lot to take in because there isn't any like fluffy bits of writing or setting the scene. He'll probably just say, like, There's a desk there, there's a chair there, there's people stood over there, that's it. Um, where you look at something like War and Peace or Moby Dick, and I imagine a couple hundred pages of those are just taken up by describing the scene, setting the mood, understanding the tone. It's what George R. R. Martin does with Game of Thrones books. Oh, yeah. And and I'm not saying I dislike that. I do like that. The first Game of Thrones book is fantastic. But in comparison, Mario Puzo sets the scene exactly the same, lets the audience play with it in their mind. They don't even have to when it's adapted into film. Hmm. And it, it gives him time to actually deliberate on what he wants his characters to do. And in most cases, not all... But in most cases, it's really beneficial because you get to spend a lot more time with the likes of Sonny Corleone, who you don't really spend far too much time with in the film, especially mm-hmm. compared to the book. You don't get a lot of time with them. Um, you spend a lot of time with Michael in Italy. You spend a lot of time with Sonny. You spend a bit more time with uh, the other brother that John Cazil Fredo. plays. Like. Fredo. Yes, that's the one. I, get, I don't like calling Fredo because we've got Fredo frogs. I don't know if you have them in Italy, like chocolate. <laughs> Chocolate Fredo frogs. frogs. Fredo frogs, yeah. I have to look they used that. To, so, 
back in the day when I was a, a wee young lad in the early days of 2005, they used to be 25p. And now they're like 65p. It's extortion. Which is what the Don would have approved of, I suppose. But <laughs> um, yeah, they're, they're a big thing in England. And it's why I kind of like stutter every time I think of the word Fredo. It's like, oh yeah, Fredo Franks. From Cardbury? No, I've never seen those. Yeah, they Jesus. are. I mean, it's it's literally just a Cadbury behind the shape of a frog. They're delicious, though. Um, I wonder if they ever played into quotes from The Godfather. Like <laughs> Fredo. I knew it was you, Fredo. I knew it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. You broke um, my chocolate. <laughs> Jesus. But no. Um, yeah, I think he spends all, the, the right amount of time with the right characters. You know, you've got spin-off bits where you, you spend a bit of time with Kay Adams and her family. You're spending time with Connie... Is it Connie? Connie, Connie Corleone? Yeah, yeah that's Talia Shire plays her, yeah. You're spending more time with these characters and you get to know them better because he's just cut through all the descriptive bits and thought, no, no, the important detail is the dialogue, how these characters talk and interact with each other. And as they're interacting, you build that around them all the time. Hmm. And you get a real feeling. You get a sense of... Like when they describe the courtyard where they all live with the big houses that they've built and they bought the property. A couple pages on that describes the area that you spend all this time with the characters in. You don't need anything beyond that, because you, your imagination should be doing that work. And it's there are some cases where it does need that description, because then it would detract from the characters, such as Johnny Fontaine and all the Las Vegas bits towards the end of the book with the Doctor. Um, that's just... It's a bit much. It's a bit much. Yeah, it's a bit much, and I suppose that's the sort of bizarre Hollywood blemishes coming into fray there. Um, I don't quite remember if they're, they're that prominent in the film. I don't think they are. No, I mean, especially especially compared to like what the real bread and butter of that film is of Marlon Brando stealing every scene he's in. Oh man, yeah. That, that's. I think one of the great things of the, of having Puzo writing the script or co-writing the script is he probably was aware of some of the shortcomings of the novel. Um, yeah, and weirdly enough, people like it was a commercial success when he came out in '69. But he wasn't that much beloved by the critics. Like quite a few of them criticized the style. They criticized pretty much everything that you just described, which are its strengths. <laughs> the fact that it's just so matter of fact, it's entirely character driven, which is also a, a, a massive strength of the film as well. Because there's just so many of these films are just just things are happening. This year we had the Many Saints of Newark, the Sopranos prequel. I watched the entirety of The Sopranos, and I watched this movie right after. And it is an interesting film, because it's, it, it plays kind of like a greatest hits of mafia films, including The yeah. Godfather, because it's a period piece set in the 70s, 60s, 70s, whatever. But I was watching it, I was thinking, there's a lot of interesting characters in here, but there's way too much plot. I want more characters. And rewatching The Godfather for the 10th, 11th time at this point, I don't even know. I've seen it way too many times. I always fall in love with it, and it's exactly because of the characters. There's so many bit players that in other movies you'd forget instantly, but here they're just magnificent. You have like like freaking freaking Pete Clemenza, Carlo Rizzi. Uh, you mentioned Talia Shire as Connie. You have Diane Keaton, and it's just it's this is proper probably one of the best casts ever put on screen. Oh, without question. Yeah. There's not one single performance that's weak, that's forgettable, that's just kind of out there. I, I like there's so many scenes that stand out. I'm thinking of like the hospital scene 
where Don Vito has been shot, everyone thinks he's dying, but he's actually surviving in the hospital, and there's a hit put on him, so Michael rushes to the hospital, and there's a friend of the family who was there at the, at the, the party in the opening scene, and he's kind of there to help to help support Vito a little bit, and then Michael gets him to pretend to have a gun just so that the the assassins go away. It's just all of those, like all those moments, all those characters, just they are so so great. Um, and and reading it in the book as well, it moves so fast. Um, outside of like like we mentioned, just Johnny Fontaine stuff does take away from it a little bit. It could have been an interesting uh, an interesting parallel to Michael's rise and fall. As oh, the God, Godfather, yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but it it doesn't really end up anywhere. <laughs> and I think the fact that they actually cut all of that out, pretty much all of it from the movie, is yeah. is Puso saying, "Yeah, that that was a bit unneeded, you know. I wrote it, but eh, we we can do without it." Um, I think it's good that he recognizes that there is stuff that needs to be cut, though. Yeah, I mean, it, it takes a a big big ego to sort of put aside that and say this didn't work when I wrote it. This needs to go for this, hmm. and I think that's. I mean, it's a credit to Puzo, but it's also a credit to Coppola, who essentially yeah. guts this book with him. They they strip it down to its core essentials. They're stripping down something essentially that is very simple anyway, hmm. and it's it, it, it's it's very credible. It's very stunning that they're just happy to sort of get rid of all the dreck, streamline hmm. it, and even then, streamlined it's still three hours long. You know, Godfather so, Two was what three thirty, three twenty, three yeah, three and a half hours. It's a it's a long sequel, but um, even then, it's like you. I finished the Godfather, and I think there's so much more that they could have added. Mm-hmm. You know, this the scene where um, I think that it it hits all the most poignant and emotive scenes. You know, the the look how they massacred my boys scene. Oh. They've got the um, you know, the make them on offer I can't refuse. They've got the wedding at the beginning. You've got all the the stuff with Michael in Italy, and it's it, it has that just feel to it, you know. When 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 you can't describe it, but you know what's coming together, right? And you know it's mm-hmm. really just beyond the pale. It's you can feel it in Gapola's Godfather. It's truly, truly strong, and I'm amazed that I didn't enjoy it the first time I watched it. Yep. I think that's just because ah, long films are bad. Ha ha. <laughs> I think that was very much the the issue there. <laughs> It, it, it seems to be a popular thing because, again, I, I like to just go through the list of people I follow on Letterboxd and read almost all of the reviews. And I did find quite a few people that didn't like it the first time around. And then rewatching it, they were like, shit, this is actually pretty fucking great. Oh, yeah. And it is it probably is one of those things where, like, I don't know, probably the hype behind it is it's a bit too much. I think I saw it when I was very much away from all of that noise. It's just kind of like, oh, this is a famous film, but there was nothing more to it. So it was yeah. more the excitement of actually watching it that helped in making me appreciate it, I guess. Um, but it also it's, works because yeah. it's, I think for a, for a teenager, a young teenager, there's a lot of action in it as well. But, oh, they, yeah. but it's it's not the type of action that's necessarily glamorous, which is also fascinating. And I think violence in cinema has evolved quite a lot over the decades but I think the early 70s it's when it got really freaking nasty and close to reality like it's pretty brutal if anyone used Live Leak back when it was actually a thing, now it's closed down, R.I.P but Live Leak was full of like archival footage of, of, of shootings and things like that and I had a dark period when I was like 15, 16 where I just was watching a ton of them 
makes me sound it's, it's not as weird as it sounds like it was for 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 research purposes for school oh right okay. it's, 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 probably should have opened with that it's like <laughs> you know we're making a thing about isis and you know they have isis videos on live leak so let's watch them it's not something i would ever recommend anyone do i don't oh, god no in hindsight it was probably not a good idea but anyway um the way the, the violence is portrayed in the book and the film it's just so again matter of fact stark blunt uh bloody without necessarily indulging in the blood and the violence of it all and i think i want to say one of the best scenes ever in cinema but there's like 10 of those scenes in this film but easily one of my all-time favorites is the hit in the restaurant when michael is forced to kill the turkish and the police officer and it's it's such a brilliant scene in the way it's portrayed because it's it's all about the tension because, oh, Michael, we know where they're going to go to the restaurant, where they're going to bring you in. So we're going to hide the gun in the toilet so you can go there, pick it up, and then exit and shoot them. And then it enters the car to go to the meeting and it just starts changing direction to see its reaction and it doesn't react to the changes of direction. Then yeah. they go back to the actual place of meeting. And then they start talking, they make him an offer, and he's almost tempted by the offer. And it's just this increasing intention, and he's constantly putting into small little problems instead. You don't really know what's going to happen. And the use of sound in it, you have this constant sound of the train passing by. And it's diegetic at first, but in the end, when he's just forced to actually kill those two men, and you just hear the sound of the train increasing and increasing. It's entirely non-diegetic. It's all inside of him, because as soon as he stands up and shoots them, it just vanishes in the air. And it's, oh, I, I'm watching that. I'm like, okay, okay, this is cinema. Oh, it's yeah. just, mm, it's so good. All of those scenes, all of those moments. But not even just that, it's it's the nuance of the performances. Marlon Brando has become, well, became kind of a meme after The Godfather. But even beforehand, you had, you know, the Stella from, uh, Stella! <laughs> from the uh, streetcar named Desire. Uh, he made On the Waterfront, so many of those classic films, but he was always very much on a heightened level. Yeah. And here in The Godfather, not only is he unrecognizable, but he just becomes The Godfather. He becomes Don Vito Corleone. And the scene, you mentioned it earlier, like, look how they massacred my boy. When he, when he hears the news of Sonny's death, it's not like one of those wide eyes, like, what? What happens? It's, it just takes it all in. You can see the pain just starting to poison him from inside. We're just kind of like looking into nowhere and just shaking his head a little bit. So much nuance. It's just kind of like, ah, so, so that's a good performance. So, so that's acting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's mad to think that Marlon Brando, before he took The Godfather, was like not in good films for about a decade. You know, he had Mutiny on the Bounty that just kind of crashed out of the box office, and from there until he got Godfather exactly ten years later. He tried directing with one idea. Yeah, he, he tried everything to reinvent himself, and I think it was the Godfather that was like, oh, as it turns out, he's a very good supporting character actor, let's just cast him in stuff like that. And then he did Superman Apocalypse Now. Um, pretty sure he did last <laughs> Island of Dr. Moreau. Uh, now, let's... <laughs> steady on there. Let's, let's not... <laughs> David Thewlis is in that, I think. He uh, is. Um, Val Kilmer. Oh, that's God. that's a movie right there. That's an uncut it's... gem, Jakub. If you're listening, no, 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 no. <laughs> don't listen to him. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's like you said about the cast. It's. 
I wonder whether or not the cast itself is like had had these actors only done this and not gone on to do like amazing films elsewhere, would this still be considered an impressive cast? Because you look at that cast and you see all the big names of it. It's like twenty years from now, if we look at the Grand Budapest Hotel, for instance, mm. you see Willem Dafoe, you see Bill Murray. Already, these are great actors, but they've got a lot more to give, like Tony Revolori and Saoirse Ronan do. Yeah, and it's. You, you look at the cast of The Godfather, it's like Talia Shire was doing The Godfather, Al Pacino was working with Sidney LeMay. Like, the, these are incredible performers. Like James Caan. James Caan, mm. who, who was doing stuff like Undercover Grandpa. Like, <laughs> and uh, Thief, The quality cinema. Well, yeah. all of this later as well, that's the thing. Yeah, it's... I mean, Diane Keaton was doing stuff with Woody Allen at the time. I think she did Sleep of the Year after Godfather and then. Three years after that, she'd won an Oscar for Annie Hall. Yeah, or four yeah. years. My maths isn't good, but um, yeah, it's like you know, you you look at all. I mean, Robert Duvall uh, has possibly had the best career out of all of them in the late stages. You know, he did The Judge, he did Widows, hmm? um, hmm? compared yeah. to like Al Pacino, who did uh, Jack and Jill. <laughs> oh, James Caan, I don't even remember the last movie. So James Caan. I think the last the one last... I saw was Henry's Crime. Oh, with Keanu Reeves. He did Queen Bees, which I um I might review for Clapper, but yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, Christopher All the best Lloyd's movies. In it. The it's it's okay. essentially that film, and then there was another one that I can't remember the name of, but it had William Shatner in it. But James Carr's like that. There's a there's a real niche for elderly people in cinema for some reason. Get them while they're alive, I guess. <laughs> you can brag you had James Caan in your film. Well, exactly that, isn't it? I mean, if you look at what I mean, I mean Robert Duvall. To be fair, he'd been in Bullet and Mash and True True Grit, but after he'd done The Godfather, he's in stuff like The Conversation, The Godfather Part Two, Network. You know, and then I mean, I watched him recently in Tender Mercies, which is a beautiful film about mm. um, a, a country singer who washed up with alcoholism finds his way back. It's essentially Crazy Heart with Jeff Bridges, but for the for the eighties crowd. Um, I'll have to watch that one. And he was oh, actually in Crazy Heart as well. He was, wasn't he? She's a fun, fun little connection. Oh, wow. uh, but yeah, I mean, we, we can talk about all this cast. I mean, John Cazale, the the man appeared in five Best Picture nominees. And then he left. Yeah. Left us way too early. Oh, God, yeah. And and yeah, and it's, it's important because in the, in the first Godfather, he doesn't have that much to do. Even though he is in a couple of big scenes, yeah. I think the assassination of uh, the, the attempted assassination of Michael Corleone in the street when he gets the when he picks up the oranges, I'm gonna get the oranges. <laughs> and it's I, I love I love his performance because it's it's just slimy and weak. Yeah, and just he sees his father gunned down and just in shock and like the gun falls out. He's like, oh, I don't know what to do. All of that, it's uh, it's great it is stuff. perfect, and it's. It's amazing, like you know. I think a big part of selling a performance and a character is that the person should look like the person they embody. Mm -hmm. And I think for for John Cazale, that's nailed right on the head. That is exactly the sort of person I imagined him being in the book. Yeah. This sleazy guy who's really cowardly and a bit slimy, mm. thrown off to the one side while the actual brothers with a, a bit of dignity and a pair of balls between them are dealing with the actual fallout. Of their father's assassination attempt, and doing the big boy stuff. Exactly, yeah. 
Mm. And it steals the show in the sequel in The Godfather Part 2. Oh, it's stunning. Um, it's the, the end scene where he does the Hail Mary on the boat. Just unbelievable performance. Like, it's... It's that and the the look of fear on his face at the Cuban Revolution Party. Where he's, <laughs> he, he's he knows he fucked up. <laughs> oh, it's, it's stunning. Like... I mean, any any film. He's not in a bad film because he only did five. But Dog the Afternoon, he plays such a versatile and different role to what he does in The Godfather. Yeah. Same for The Deer Hunter, plays such a tremendously different role in that compared to The Godfather Part One and Two. And it's it is a shame conversation, that, yeah. Oh man, it's a shame we lost them so soon. But those performances are unbelievable, like utterly stunning. This um, is a proper like every single movie is like a five star. They're all in oh, my yeah. all time favorites list. They're all so great. He's he's got an unbelievable consistency. That I mean, if you look at Al Pacino, he I mean maybe you never know. John Cazale could have been doing Adam and uh, Jack and Jill. Adam, and, <laughs> oh yeah, Jack and Jill or so on. <laughs> but yeah, I think the the cast for that is stunning, and I think it's it, it's one of the few casts where I can look at it and think every single person in that film. Has been cast just right. It's perfect. Yes. And wasn't it like it might have been for Pulp Fiction as well that they did this? But the the actual like list of people that they wanted for the role are written down on a sheet, and it was like mm. the the leaked original of what Capola had wanted. And essentially, everybody on that list is in that film. And it's and it shows. Oh yeah, it was definitely thrown out. And the way the film is is made as well, it's aged. So so well. Um, the the cinematography by the great Gordon Willis, who shot yeah. all three of the movies in the trilogy. It's just this con this high contrast, lights and shadows. Everything's covered in darkness. Whenever you get inside, um, yeah. the opening shot alone, this slow zoom out on the face of this man talking to the Godfather about asking him to to avenge his his daughter's uh, uh, pride and virginity basically it's, it looks stunning it's a great way to start out the film off but but everything else as well a lot of use of natural light in outdoor scenes that's incredible um but for me always easily the standout it's the music nino oh, rota uh, i could honestly listen to this for hours i have the entire trilogy on cd it's oh. just so good my dad Everything. has the opening theme as his phone number for work nice <laughs> it's like i you hear the the, the first few notes it's like oh brilliant <laughs> the trumpet <laughs> no it's not a trumpet shit what is it i don't know that. that's why i sort of didn't name the instrument clarinet I no, clarinet? no. And now uh, it's like, I'll, it's a uh, string. What instrument is the Godfather? <laughs> trumpet. You know, you were right. Trumpet. Was it a trumpet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey. yeah. I got it's this uh... one. For once, I actually nailed the instrument. <laughs> yeah, Nina Rota does a beautiful job. Like, incredible. It's such a... a, it's, a, it's, a it's a theme that is now synonymous with, like, it's, it's on the level of Jaws and Jurassic oh. Park and Back to the Future. It, of course it is. It's, it sounds so incredible. And I think it, 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 I think a lot of, a lot of films depend on how good the theme is. You know, if you've got if you've nailed your theme, then you're proud of it and you're going to use it a lot, like they did with Power of Loving Back to the Future. Um, it, it's As they should. Oh, well, rightly so. Huey Lewis <laughs> and the news have never been so grand. Um, but for something like the Godfather's theme song, you, you use that at every moment you get. 
It's like, um, have you watched uh, Succession on HBO? <laughs> no, everyone's watching oh, it. it's beautiful. So they've essentially got one theme song, but it's played on such a variety of different instruments and at different tenors ah. and at different lengths that they, they've made a whole soundtrack of all the different scenes and all the different emotions out of that one little piano twinkle. It's amazing. Mm. I have listened to the intro song, so if it's yeah, the same yeah, one, yeah. it's a good one. It is, it's it the is exact so same one just extended or elongated or crushed together just on different instruments. Nice. And it's amazing how versatile it is. And you get some of like the Godfather's theme song. That's a very versatile mm. theme. And it's it kind of reflects the versatility of the performers and the, the story. It's just such... Yep. It would take us hours and hours and hours to deliberate everything about the Godfather. Oh, I, I honestly could. I could go like scene oh, by scene yeah. with this. It's, it's like, like you mentioned the music. I, I never even connected it before, but you're right. Like the opening scene and the closing scene have the same the same track. It's the main theme, the Godfather that we talked yeah. about. But just in the opening, it's it's very slow. It's very like. Na, 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 na. Just the this, 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 the logo appears on screen, and then it just fades out. Yeah. And it enters into the, the oh yeah. During starts with the wedding, it just sets this atmosphere. But then in the ending, it's the same track, but it's more upbeat. Um, it's faster, but it also feels more menacing. And I think yes, that's honestly does. one of the things that I always connected with a lot with the film. It's the the theme of family of loyalty and also the whole tragedy of Michael Corleone. And one thing that I yeah. forget every single time when I watch this, and this is the first time where I actually looked at the runtime because it was like, I don't know when anything happens in this film because it just flows by so quickly for me that the three hours are like 20 minutes, probably. Oh, yeah. It was kind of like, how long is the wedding? I was like, oh shit, it's like half an hour. <laughs> oh yeah, it's, it's like... like I it's mean, like that length is replicated the in the book. It's like such a long time is spent at the wedding because there's so much detail there. Yes. You kind of absorb rather subconsciously where it's like you get to know a lot of the characters of that wedding mm-hmm. without even realizing that you're being introduced to them. It's like people just come and go from the wedding. And it's like, oh, we're now spending like a whole chapter with them. Bloody hell. That's amazing. Yeah. You're like Luca Brasi. Trying to like reciting and repeating the thanks to the to to the dawn, yeah. like thank you for inviting me to your daughter's wedding. <laughs> and just repeating it on himself, and then you have Kay, who's who's the outsider to all of this, and she's introduced yeah. to the world by 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 Michael, and 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 that's the true tragedy of the story because I just Vito Corleone, the the Godfather, is this very like beloved man, ruthless but not without reason. Yeah. So everything that he does is for a reason, and he has a, a strong ethic and strong honor to himself. And it's kind of like you know they try to push pull him into the drug business. And we're talking about the late forties, like the war has just ended pretty much, and they're starting to say, "Well, you know, we're making some some drugs. It's, it's going to be good stuff." It's kind of like I don't do drugs, and I don't want you to like deal around schools, around children. We're we're going to kill you if you do that. <laughs> just completely against that. So it's it is in a way romanticizing the mafia is kind of like you know there's yeah. there's people of honor there, it's the it's the honor code code of, code of honor that they have, but but he's a very respected man. But he's also the fact that he's unable to move with the times. That's what yeah. brings his attempted assassination, and they, they fail. They try to kill him because of that, and they fail. And Michael Michael who resents his family for their way of living. 
who tried to be as different as possible from them. He went into the army when they didn't want him to, just kind of like, yeah, I'm going on my own into Italy to kill Nazis and do my best. I want to be a proper gentleman. He arrives at the party dressed in the uniform with Kay, who is an outsider. She's not even Italian. So he's trying to be as di- as different from them as, as he can, but the assassination attempt changes that and it pulls him yeah, into this does, world. Yeah. And and that's when, when he starts to find out that he's actually pretty good at being in the mafia. <laughs> being a mafia also, and, yeah. And he uses a lot of rage. And that's always that's always struck me as interesting because the Sunny kind of makes makes fun of him. He's like, "Oh, like you're gonna go kill these two men? Like it's not like in the war where you're shooting from from afar. It's you have to go there, like bang, it's like right in the head, all the blood in your face. It's just just it's personal. You're making it personal. It's like no, no, no. This isn't personal. It's business. And the way that he acts is very much business like, but you cannot deny that he's doing it for personal reasons, just to avenge his father. Yeah, and it's, it's yeah. just." The fact that then he goes to Italy and he basically just lives the proper mafioso life, like in his home country of Corleone in Sicily, which is a, which is a real town, by the way, it, it exists. And, and, and I think they shot it there as well, maybe in the film. Which hats off, it it is very much a, a mafia then, still to this day. Um, but. But it's he becomes corrupted by all of this, and yeah. it's horrible to look at. And it all culminates not only with him just killing people off left and right, but killing his own brother-in-law. And not only that, but just lying. And that's a, a nice difference from the novel because in the novel, at the end of the story, just he's he's become the new godfather, the new head of the Corleone family because one brother is in Vegas. Fredo and the other one, Sonny, was killed during the story. And so Kay, in the novel, who's now his wife, kind of accepts this fate. She's kind of like, okay, like you've become this, fine, whatever. But meanwhile, in the film, it's much more tragic because she asks him, she's like, Michael, like, are, have you actually killed your brother-in-law? Have you done all of these horrible things? Just look me in the eye and, and tell me the truth. And he just looks her dead in the eye and just Pacino is so good. Just kind of like looks at her and goes, okay, I haven't done any of that. Just straight <laughs> face. And then she's like, yeah. oh man, yeah. What? Oh it's, it's my all God. Good, no, no, well, now that she said the truth, well, and then he just exits the room and just the music starts playing again and everyone yeah. else enters the room and just kiss him. God, That's father. the record scratch moment you love to see. And it's so much better than something that's like, you know, you, you, you see, you hear in a lot of modern movies now. I think of the French Dispatch where they kept playing that Jarvis Cocker song over and over and over again in the second bit with Timothy Chalamet. And um, yeah, I love that song, but hearing the intro do it about 15 <laughs> times in half an hour was grim. It's a limit. <laughs> That's, I, look, I, I listen to that song a lot. I listen to it pretty much every day because I've got my playlist in a set order. But it's. It's knowing when to use a good song that really does it. The Godfather does that perfectly. It knows not to overuse the song because otherwise people get sick of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's and the other classic tune from the movie is the love theme, yes, which, which yeah. became a song as well, it's like "Speak Softly, My Love," something like that, I think in English. And it's they use it so, so effectively. 
and it yeah. captures the the atmosphere, the tragedy of all this story. But it's it's wonderful. Um, but there's one actually we haven't even mentioned it, which is kind of crazy that we've gone this long to talking about the Godfather and the book without mentioning it. But there's one major, major, major difference from the novel and the film, which is that the novel has a prologue, which ended up being part of it the does. Godfather Part Two. Yeah, the yeah. the the origins pretty much of Vito Corleone. <laughs> I think the the odd thing about the prologue is that it is. In the middle of the book, <laughs> it's, is it right after Michael goes to Sicily? I think so. Yeah, because it's meant Something to be like, like a comparison of the the son following in the footsteps of the father, yeah. and it, it's it's a nice comparison. But I think the um, the time spent with Vito in those early years is really beneficial. I really mm. enjoyed it, and it's it's nice to see it was incorporated into the sequel because I I, I mean watching that today was fantastic. Robert De Niro was stunning. And I always Thank used you. to say that the the weakest, the weakest part of The Godfather 2 was that they didn't just make that a separate film. Mm. And I disagree with myself now. Um, it works perfectly as on its own. Or, like, you know, as part of the narrative. Because then that comparison between father and son, it's made so much more clearer. And I think that's what really benefits The Godfather 2, where it's you, okay, you have Vito doing the family business stuff, he's actually setting it up. And you've got Michael who's essentially doing the same thing where he's restructuring the whole outlook of the family. Mm -hmm. And it's it's really well developed. Like it's it's really, really good. And it's handled surprisingly well as well. I think it was it was a bit of a shock to just get thrown back in time by about thirty years in the book. But having it just in the cut where a transition should be in the film is the best way to do it. There's kinda the they wrap together really nicely. It's mm. very delightful. Yeah. And I love the when I was reading up on on the Godfather Part Two, I love that there was someone I don't remember who, who who wrote in the review something like. In one part of the story, you're seeing a man turn a business into a family, and in yeah. the other story, you're seeing a man turn a family into business. I was like, oh, sh this is, you know, this is good writing. <laughs> <laughs> this is condensing the entirety of the three and a half hours into one sentence, two sentences. And 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 that's I think that's what makes it work even better, having the flashback and the prologue to Vito's rise to to power, rise to becoming the Godfather. I think it works so well. Because if you had it in the movie Godfather Part One. It's it, you're seeing the two different types of rises to 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 power, which again could have worked in one yeah. way or the other, but the way it's intercut in the other film is that you're seeing Michael just betraying everyone, losing trust in everyone. He's losing his wife. He has to kill his brother. He's just creating a hole of loneliness around himself. And meanwhile, yeah. you're seeing Vito, who was kind, was helping people out. And again, I mean, we're still talking about the mafia, some good stuff, what he was doing. But there was there were good intentions. Like for 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 narrative's sake, he was doing good. Like he was helping friends and family, and he wasn't like he was expecting something in return. But he was never. It always felt honest in a weird way. The way he acted, even though we're still talking about someone who murdered people, and and seeing Michael on the other side of the coin, just ruthlessly sending someone else kill his brother on the boat, yeah, 
just kind of like so detached from everything. And I think what's what's especially poignant of of that film is that the final scene is a flashback to like a Christmas party or like right before yeah, he actually with left. Sunny and everyone, yeah. With Sunny and everyone. They wanted Marlon Brand as well. Thankfully he didn't come back because it would have been a bit too much, I think, having him show yeah. up. Yeah. But just seeing the whole family together, probably the last time where things were kind of right, almost. Like there's no going back. Like Michael killed himself pretty much. And and having the contrast between those two stories is beautiful, beautiful. It is a film all about family, you know? It's in the, in the book as well. It is all about family. So it's a very Italian thing to to have. <laughs> yeah. So we love family. It's it, yeah, it, it, it's that last scene. It's like the, the nice bow around the, the wrapped present. It's, it's, it's a confirmation that these people are now not lost without him, but they're not part of his life anymore. Mm. And it's, it's, it's reflecting on that almost immediately. And then having the credits roll, it's like, oh God, right, there's the comparison. I, I, I think that's a risk Apollo takes there where it's like, do you want to leave it up to the audience to make that connection? Or do you just hit them with it? And I think mm-hmm. he, he does it it does right in just hitting them with it. It's yeah. it's the flashback to the, the you know the family he had before all the problems began to rise, and it's it's really well done, and it's it's still got the you know the tenacity and the aggression of Sonny, and it's still got the sliminess of Fred Fredo. Um, I almost call him Fredo because Fredo is the chocolate frog. Um, anyway, <laughs> yeah, but the chocolate frog bloke and the angry bloke, it, you know, but the. They they are still the same character then as they are in the first Godfather and the second Godfather, and it's nothing about them changes. It's the actual tone and the mood of that scene. Mm. You know, you still have Sonny's aggression. You still have Fredo being like a bit quiet and shy and a bit coy and weird. And it's it's the characters and the comparison you can make between them there and them after they've had a big falling out essentially. Mm. And it's 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 like you said. It's like family's a big thing in Italy. And it's, you know, it's quite reflective that Michael no longer has that by the end of the second film. So, you know, his wife's gone. His, I think he's got custody of the kids, doesn't he? He yeah, tries he to, at least. He, he tries, yeah, but he fails. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, his two brothers are dead. His father is dead. His mother is dead. It's it's the isolation of it. He doesn't trust any of his inner circle. It's that isolation mm-hmm. that he tries to prevent for so long in the first film. It's fantastic. It's, it's really, really rewarding. Sitting um, alone on the lake. Yeah, like I don't know if it, that's like based on anything Puzo wrote because I've only read The Godfather. I don't know where The Godfather two came from though. And, entirely like... original, entirely wow. original. Yeah, that's so stunning. basically they loved collaborating with each other so much, and the studio wanted a sequel. They, they just, just kind of were it, like, yeah. let's let's do it, let's make it. So I they took advantage thought, of yeah. the prequel narrative already wow. to implement it as a starting off point. That's fantastic because I because I've got a copy of Fool's Gold and the Sicilian behind me, mm-hmm. and I always thought, oh, okay, it's going to be based on one of those two, and they're apparently just completely different entirely. Yeah, I want to say it's Godfather is a standalone. Like I don't think there's others other books or sequel ever made about it. Let me just check for safety. Yeah, yeah, just in case. I was going to open Goodreads, but it's actually down right now. I thought Goodreads was down. I was trying to update my reading, and it just wasn't letting me. Oh, because it's the because it's all connected to to Amazon, and Amazon is down. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, God. How am I going to watch Parks and Recreations now? Okay, so there, there's a... The Sicilian is 
set in the same universe, okay. Okay. But it's not a proper sequel. Oh, what the... F- okay, there's five sequels. Hang on, ladies and gentlemen. So, wait. Okay. So, some of them aren't written by Puzo. Jesus, no. Yeah, so, yeah, 1969, The Godfather. 1984, The Sicilian. Which is interesting. Okay, so it's the Sicilian is set right before Michael goes back to New York after the Five Families War, when they oh. go to the mattresses. Um, then you have the Godfather Returns <laughs> in two thousand and four, which sounds like a fake novel. Yeah, it does sound. <laughs> Vito Corleone is back from the dead. It's like after the event of the... the first novel. <laughs> God. It expands upon the characters, including Johnny Fontaine, because there wasn't oh, enough of him. Jesus. Jeez. Then you have The Godfather's Revenge <laughs> in 2006. <laughs> written by the same author, Ma- Mark Weingartner. And then you have The Family Corleone, which is a prequel to The Godfather. But that's that, that's in the first novel. Why, don't, why do you need no, the, sequ- the prequel? The novel also reveals how Luca Brasi became associated with the Corleones. Oh, that's just... I mean, it's its like the inevitabilities of... And anything you make in film now needs to have a spin-off and a, and a, and a, a podcast dedicated just to that character and a comic strip series and a book and a novelization and an action figure. So that you, imagine if they did that for The Godfather, for every character. It's like, if, if The Godfather was made now, you would have a Luca, Luca Brasi spin-off series... A la the Equalizer, where it's just someone that probably is Jeremy Renner would be cast as him, and he'd be stalking the streets, going just shooting up people, and then doing odd little quips. There's going to be a, a good episodes. mic drop moment where they reference like cannolis. Yeah, yeah. yeah and it's yeah. like leave the cannoli, take the gun to shoot the guy. Yeah, and they're like, oh man, it's so fun. It's a reference to the to the famous scene, you know. All all the taglines would be stuff like. Uh, we're going to make you a series you can't refuse, or the you were pulled out and now you're getting pulled back in, or whatever. Just like, when I thought I was out, they <laughs> pulled me back in. Yeah, I, I mean the the reviews would range from shit to fucking shit. <laughs> Jesus, yeah. I mean uh, I know the, the the opening of my review would probably be like you broke my heart. I knew it was you. <laughs> you broke my heart. Movie prequels, you know. <laughs> It's just I trusted you. Well, I mean, touch wood that never happens to the Godfather, but I can see it happen. Well, well. Oh, don't say. We're well. not getting a prequel movie to the Godfather, but you know what we're getting? Aren't, isn't is it Andrew Garfield that's doing something? No. Is that right? Thinking Andrew Garfield's doing like a film about the behind the scenes stuff. Was Andrew Garfield Harry Styles? No, we're we're getting a, a, a. Let me actually just double check before I say something wrong. But we're getting a freaking. Where is it? Is it the behind the scenes film? Yes. Yeah. I I want. I don't remember if it's a film or like an HBO miniseries. But we're getting <sighs> the making of the Godfather. It's I like, don't know how it was made. It was made with cameras and actors. That's all I need to know. There's a book. I know there's a good. Uh, there's a book that's apparently pretty good about it's like yeah. the oral history of making the Godfather. Oh, let me get it on Amazon. Oh, it's down. <laughs> this is what you get for buying from Amazon. I just want to buy a book. <laughs> Probably like Waterstones has it, I guess. Oh, I know, but Waterstones to to get the Waterstones it takes me like half an hour. 
that's also true. I don't think it's, I haven't seen this anywhere here as well, so I'd, I'd have to get it from Amazon. <laughs> what was that book called, though? Uh, I think it's like literally take the cannoli or something like that. Let me actually check. No, that's a, that's a oh, collection of what? Leave the gun, take the cannoli. Yeah, is it actually the, the, yeah, 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 the yeah, epic yeah. story of the making of the Godfather? Huh. And that came out this year. If People I order like it now, it. I can get it tomorrow. Nice. Oh, it came out this year. I yeah. Okay. I, I, I noticed someone I, I follow on Twitter actually read it, loved it. So I was like, you know, I probably read it as well. Uh, but that's the thing. Like, we're probably we're gonna be talking about this probably in the future. But yeah. the disaster artist is a good example because yes. the novel, well, it's not a fiction novel; it's a non-fiction novel. But the novel itself is a brilliant read. But when you make it into a film, sure, it's it's fun, enjoyable, whatever, but it's not the same thing. So much is going to be lost in translation, and so many things you cannot put into a movie because it's just yeah. a bit too much. Oh, without a doubt. And, and then, it's... of course, we're getting the making of The Godfather, and I also know we're getting the making of the, the Chinatown. Yeah, like, so there's a, there's a book called... Hang on, I'll turn around, it's on my shelf. Is the Chinatown by, one. The, the big goodbye um, about Chinatown and that sort Great. of the, the final the final days of that golden generation essentially. Um, it, it, it seems like quite a good read. I've been meaning to get my hands on it for ages and I just mm-hmm. happened to be visiting where I'm moving to. I walked into Waterstones and it was there for like hey. a tenner. So I got myself that, treated myself as ever. Nice. Um, apparently it's very mixed on the reception. Hmm. Oh, never mind, no, that's the big goodbye. That's an episode of Star Trek. <laughs> there it is. Chinatown in the last years of Hollywood. Um, it, about, essentially, like, Jack Nicholson at the height of his powers and why it sort of faded out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't see the need to actually make those into films. That's that's when you start pandering to nostalgia and everything. It is, yeah. Um, it's, we're living you know, in an era where it's just always about nostalgia. Always. We're about a decade away from that Made Men book on Goodfellas getting turned into a, a documentary series or like mm. a feature film. That's where we're at culturally. And it's all the fault of Illumination Studios. You know? They're, they're mass producing this commercial viability. It's up to other studios to sort of grasp that and think, yes, we can do the same. And that's what's happening. Yeah. It's you know, Marvel, I mean, it's Illumination. Just look at Marvel. I mean... Hawkeye and stuff like that. I'm not even going to watch it. I, I, I don't think I Hawkeye mean, is a real show. I haven't seen a single tweet about it. I don't think it yeah, actually exists. I, I haven't seen it. I, I guess it's because Hawkeye didn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. But I've not seen a single... like The usual suspects aren't tweeting about it. I imagine that's because it's shit. Um, but no, I've I remember... first tweets about Haley Steinfeld. That's literally the only brilliant. thing. It was me, you and Jakob, I think, that had this conversation about the reason we watch this stuff is to keep relevant... Mm-hmm. To make sure we know what's going on, because that is our job. I don't have the energy for it anymore. I'm too old. Oh. I mean, I'm, I'm 22 not... this year, you know? <laughs> too old for this shit. The tender age of 22. I'm like, my back's broken, <laughs> my, my wrists have got bad joints, and I'm falling to pieces. I don't need to watch Hawkeye. I really don't. But I will, because it's expected of me. Yeah. If anybody, is anybody clever enough for Clapper, actually? I'll do it. I don't think anyone is. I don't think oh, anyone cares. So go, go for it. It's all yours. Time People stay plus subscription. Go on clapperltd.co.uk. At this time, probably the review's already out. 
If the show yeah. is ended, I don't even know when it started, when it ends. I don't, I don't it know. It never ends, Nick. It it's never like, ends. It's like 100 episodes of Hawkeye. Jerry oh. Miranda has enough free time on his hand. Look, to if, make Tiger, up. if Tiger King can get a sequel, surely Jeremy Renner's Hawkeye can. Uh, yeah. Honestly, at this point, like, this is coming out on the 26th of December. Matrix's Resurrections has already come out. I'm st- oh, I still don't know if I'm watching it on HBO Max and then going to the cinema because it's coming out on New Year's here. So I'd have oh, to wait two weeks, yes, or at least over a week. So I was like, ah, do I want to wait to watch it on the big screen the first time around? But I think I'll probably give in to Temptation, watch it on, on HBO Max, and then watch it again in the cinema if it's actually good. But yeah. I'm I mean, hoping... that's, the, I, that's the nice thing about everything being available like on streaming services is that you can kind of check before yeah. you go to the cinema now. It's like, You're in the loop. It's like, yeah. yes, it's worth it's it. It's like, all right, I've watched Dune. I'll give that a skip. Yeah, clever. Yeah. <laughs> but I think like we're talking about the God. We talked about Illumination and Marvel, and they're making the Godfather prequel TV show bullshit, making of whatever. Yeah. And I think I'm really hoping the Matrix Resurrection. From what I've heard about some spoilers of the narrative, and from what they're giving away in the trailers, which are literally the only trailers I'm watching right now. I don't care about other trailers. I'm just I, if there's Keanu Reeves, I'm watching the trailer. Any other movie, I don't care about. And it looks like it's going to be very much a deconstruction of nostalgia, of the past, yeah. of how we are obsessed with bringing back that property. That's what people need. They need deconstructions of what they're fond of. Yes. You can't move forward with art if you're so stuck on what you liked in the first place. If you're watching the same shit as you do with Marvel stuff, mm-hmm. you're not progressing not just as a person, but as someone that can appreciate different art. Yeah. You can't just eat the same food every day you would want something different you can't just watch the same film every day because you would want something different or you would think so but there are people that have possessed themselves into thinking that marvel can differentiate or illumination can differentiate and it's not possible you're, you're still eating the same broth yeah. you know yeah. and that's exactly what it is it's just broth it, yeah. it is something vaguely watered down that may taste quite nourishing but you've got to have some something consistent you gotta have your meat and veg you know you gotta have stuff like the godfather you gotta have stuff like 1966 is the grinch 1966 is the grinch you gotta have stuff like the grinch grinch is the cat in the hat you know you got you just gotta it's just yeah and and the worst part is that like we talk primarily about movies but even their own books like i didn't know there were four sequel books to the godfather and only one is written by mario puzzo and it's not even a sequel so that's just like ev- everything is just tainted by this right now. And you have you have we have remakes of songs. Taylor Swift oh, is remaking God. her songs. So that's that's the level where we're at. And you know they yeah. can be good, they can be bad, but it's just we we need to move forward. We need to take risks, and just you know pray for a better future at this point. Like there's not much else we can do. Just. Very wholesome. Uh, Johan, why don't you tell me your favorite scene <laughs> and, uh, and characters oh, from The Godfather? I think it's going to sound pretty obvious, but I love the scene. Sorry, uh, saying that I love this scene sounds a bit weird in hindsight, actually. Uh, the, the scene where Vito Corleone dies, uh, he, he's in the garden surrounded by his tomatoes and his, he, his he's oranges. nourishing them and his grandson's coming up to him and he, he has the heart attack. Oh, yeah. And that's it's done so well in the book. Like my god, 
it's it's the bit where he's like he he's essentially dancing with death, and it's like he mentions death, and then it's like death stomps on him or something like that, and it's like just that's it, and it's such a shock, not because like you don't expect it, you got to expect something like that to happen in 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 fiction, but of just how it's handled, you know, you, you get a progression of you know it's it's an oddly happy ending for someone that has spent a life with not so happy people, mm-hmm. you know. This is a bloodthirsty man that has killed people that were a threat to his family and his business. It takes that idea of family defense very, very vividly. Um, mm-hmm. And it surprises me that... Yeah, yeah it, sorry, it's... Pri- oh, sorry. <laughs> it's, it surprises me that he gets a happy ending. Or, mm. or, or as happy as it can get. You know, he's surrounded by his loved ones. He's mm? he, he, he has his passions. He's surrounded by his tomatoes. He has retired like, pretty much. Yeah, he's retired from that life. And it's it's not often you watch a film that is so bloodthirsty and gory where a character gets to die essentially of natural causes. You know, usually they're gunned down. Mm-hmm. It's 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 the same for Vito and eh, not Vito and Michael in the third film. Yeah. But he it's it's the replication of father and son all over again, and it's Only the Derry's completely alone. Yeah, precisely. Like he, he destroyed um, everything he could. He tries to find redemption of the soul in the first. Yeah, one. and it's that's something that Vito didn't need because mm-hmm. he had it. And I think I like that a lot. He dies a satisfied man when it's he really shouldn't have, and it's very emotional. Yeah, and I think it just Marlon Brando sells that scene so it's incredibly well, mm-hmm. just uh, unbelievable. Like. It, it should uh, surprise that he's my favorite character as well. Yeah. It's amazing, honestly. Bless him. So for me, like, yeah, in in the novel, it's it's interesting how how slightly different Michael is compared to the movie, and I don't say that necessarily in a, in a positive way too much because it's Michael in the in the novel is it's kind of like a good person. You know, where he, like they make him very likable. Let's just say, um, where he accepts like some of his flaws, some of his problems, and he's trying to become better. He even says that says, says that in a, in a couple of parts. But Michael in the Michael in the film, like he's ruthless, like he has death in his eyes constantly. And when he starts getting power, he doesn't have any problem telling people to fuck off. <laughs> just do what he says. Um, but I do like Michael in the in the novel and. The time he spends in Sicily is fascinating. It is fascinating in the film as well, but that's that's one of the standout parts in the book, especially because it comes after everything that um, that uh, that Vito has gone through in his childhood, in Sicily and then going to New York. But in the movie, like uh, in the movie, I love everyone so much, and I have to say it's kind of like a tie between Sonny. Corleone, played by by James Caan, and Tom Hagen, Robert Duvall, because I think the two of them just every time I watch this movie, I fall in love with them more and more. They're just so good. I think because Tom Hagen is such a restrained character. You mentioned he's an outsider to the family by blood, but he's very much part of it. Uh, and then you have Sonny, who's this hot-headed brother who's trying to protect his sister, who's trying to do the best for the family, but he just gets himself constantly into trouble. And this death scene is brutal. Like, when he's gunned down as, at the... at the... in the... whatever... how does it even call the place where they... Just like, the tall... 
place, whatever. Just when he gets gunned down there in his car, just like hundreds of bullets hitting him in the car and just left to die alone. It's dark, and, and I think James Khan is incredible in the film. But that's an excellent scene, for instance. The assassination in the restaurant is an excellent scene. Uh, the the opening wedding, I just love for all the little details that we talked about. The death of Vito, like you mentioned, lovely. The final shot, like, just, just every single scene is great. But I think, like, easily, the one scene that's the standout of everything. That, and that's, I think, when I feel in... I, probably that's when I fully fell in love with cinema, maybe even. It's a hyperbolic statement, but whatever. Just the baptism by blood. Just the whole yeah. montage of the baptism at the end. Oh, it's it's cinema. Michael just baptizing his son, oh, accepting God, yeah. Christ and God and denouncing the devil. And meanwhile, but, you're yeah. seeing all this plan of death and violence that he has concocted to kill all all the people yeah. that have wronged him and the family. It's an amazing contrast. The Grinch should have done that. <laughs> I want to see the Grinch with the shotgun just waiting outside the elevator and just shooting Cindy Lou Who. Just... <laughs> I want to see the Grinch become Cindy Lou Who's godfather and then blow their mother away. Pharrell it's... Williams would have a hard brutal. time narrating that one, let me tell you. That entire scene is brutal. Like the use of squibs in it. Uh, the guns themselves, like you can you can tell they're they're not shoot they're shooting blanks, but like big fucking blanks. Oh, but there's uh, Luca Brasi, I think, who's shooting with the shotgun in the elevator, at the elevator, and just you can see the kickback of the gun when he's shooting. Jesus, um, and and honestly, I still like I've I I haven't really looked into it, which is my problem. But I like to figure out like how shots, certain shots are achieved, and yeah. the shot of I, I don't remember the guy's name, but like the man in who's getting the like back waxed or whatever. And he just puts on the glasses and gets shot in the eye. And oh, blood yeah. comes pouring out. I still don't know how they achieved it. And it's probably super easy. But it's it's insane. They it's, actually shot him in the eye. They actually, just, that's commitment yeah. to the craft. It's like, <laughs> yeah, just do it. Just do it. Um, yeah, it's just, amazing like how much of that is impressive. And especially considering the time period. Like It's the 70s. They don't exactly yeah. have CGI. Um, what what sticks out for me in the law was will it's it like it's ingrained in my mind is the the death of Sonny Corleone mm. the um the shootout bit where the car pulls up and he's a, it's exactly how I imagine that in the book as it is in the film it's but that's one of the many benefits of the Godfather's adaptation it's got the author there as like a, a bit of a guide and it's like no no please don't do that why not this instead <laughs> and I think that works really well it really works in the favor of um Coppola to have him there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and having him come back as well in the future. Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. yeah, and they they try to replicate some of those scenes. I mean, the entire, like, basically in the Godfather Part Three, they take the <laughs> they basically take the climax of the first Godfather and just stretch it out for twenty five minutes at the opera. We're getting part of the Cavalleria Rusticana, <laughs> which, which honestly <laughs> I love that sequence, and it is more technically proficient and ambitious this, than this one. In the first Godfather, but but just this is a class. This is perfect. This is perfect cinema to me, and just I love this film so much. I've seen it so many times. I'll probably see it even more times. 
Like, if I have children when they're six years old, I'm just going to show them the Godfather. It's like, look, there's a dead horse's head in the bed. It's a funny, funny stuff for a six-year-old. And I'll show them the Grinch. And I'll let them choose what which they like more. And if they say the Grinch, they're going to do oh. orphanage for Christmas. <laughs> so oh, I don't God. want them. <laughs> it's like, you're, you're dead to me. I don't, I don't ever want kids, because I never want to run that gauntlet. Who knows what they're like. You, you two get them while they're early. Like, that's my, my dream is like, okay, get when they're, when they're like one or two years old, start showing them silent films. Yeah, like, and then like the Godfather, up. but muted. <laughs> no, like like George Melies and, uh, you know, oh, sh- show yeah. them, uh, show them like, I don't know, like Birth of a Nation. Like, that's, that's good stuff for a child to watch. Birth of a Nation, Intolerance, Nosferatu. And then when they reach like five or six years old, you can go to the 30s and 40s. Citizen Kane. The Godfather, when they're like nine or ten. So they're never going to reach Marvel. They're going to be like 40 when they watch Marvel movies. <laughs> or 18. Be, well, that is Marvel's target audience, 40. <laughs> oh, well, it, it is accidentally their target audience. <laughs> it's only going to increase in age as time goes by. <laughs> Oh well. Anyway, I I hope everyone enjoyed this this special Christmas episode <laughs> of Death by Adaptation. And you, and as always, where where can the lovely listeners find you at? Oh God, where can't they find me these days? <laughs> uh, cult following, Clapper, obviously, uh, the Geek Show. You can get me at Daily Star if you really want to. I don't think anybody wants to read that though. Uh, it it is really fun writing that. It I is fun. That. I like the it, It's a lot of fun. I wrote about Christmas trees in North Korea. I I. I love writing for that place. It's it's really odd. Um, oh. You get me... I mean, I'm on Spark Radio every now and then. Not consistently, but Tuesdays from 11 to 12 is my allocated slot. Um, can't do that at the moment because the, the roof of my office has only just been put back on after being destroyed in a storm. My glasses are broken. Gone. Oh, they, they, they are not there anymore. So for this whole podcast, I've not been able to see a thing. Um <laughs> You're not missing uh, out on much. I, I wrote this Death by Adaptation feature on The Godfather without being able to see what I was writing, so it took the yak to piece it together. <laughs> um, Bless him. But no, I'm looking forward to what we've got in the new year. Yeah. Should be fun. Yeah. You, you can follow me on Twitter at NickyBar97, and there you can find a link tree, and you can just go on link tree oh. with like dot ee slash forward slash enjoy the movies and there you can find all the links to my stuff um including you know my articles on clapper and on book for thought you can also follow the podcast on instagram and twitter at death adaptation pod on instagram and at death adaptation on twitter and as well we've got a new link tree just set it up today so Whoa. that everyone can find, you know, the Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts. I started using Instagram more and putting out reels. There's going to be tons of those coming out because they're just fun to make and people seem to like them. The first one got like over 600 views in just two days. So might as well keep this going. Um, and uh, and also definitely check out, you know, Clapper's other podcasts. You've got the Anchor Gems podcast where we actually did talk about the Godfather Part 3. So if you want a whole discussion about that, we did it back in September. Just go listen to it. It was a ton of fun to record. Um, and also go listen to Classic Clappercast. And Clappercast, normal, as always, say Classic Clappercast. Go to the Patreon for Classic Clappercast. <laughs> there's, there's just a lots of, lots of podcasts. Just go on Clapper. Give us a listen. Give us a read. 
and stay tuned for next month where we're going to be doing two episodes for the first time. And I don't know if we're going to be having more episodes coming soon, like specials here and there, maybe, but the monthly format is going to stay here, but there's just going to be more special things here and there. But We've got so much to do next we year, aren't we? We it's do. great. We do. There's lots of good and horrible, horrible books to read <laughs> <laughs> waiting for us. But thankfully for January, we will be talking about H.G. Wells' The Invisible Man and the classic Catch-22. And, you know, there's going to be another, maybe, a special episode about The Rum Diary with hopefully yeah. a good guest joining us for that one. So definitely stay tuned. Follow us everywhere on all the social media. Rate us on Spotify and Apple. I don't know. Wherever you can rate us, just give us a thumbs up, five stars. We thoroughly appreciate it. And with that said, Merry Christmas to everyone once again. And, yeah, you Merry know, Christmas. Happy, Happy New, Year. New Year. All the best. Happy Hogmanay. Happy Hanukkah, um, probably. I don't know when that is. I don't know. Uh, happy everything. Happy, 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 happy life. Happy Ferrickson Day. Enjoy Easter. We can pre-record these soundbites now, so when I die of old age, we can just fire them out on the socials. It's like, oh, he's on another episode. Happy whatever day it is. Brilliant. You can just put it on, a, on like the grave as well. It's yeah. just, it just pops yeah. up at different times, like it's Easter, and just come, someone comes to the grave and they hear the voice. A little it's confetti like still alive. behind the grave. It's like he's still here. Happy Halloween. I'll do. Brilliant. That, that's what I want in my life. <laughs> those are goals. Those, well, for 2022, those can be our goals. Just, what, dying? You know, <laughs> having a good gravestone, you know? You can never be too prepared <laughs> for those things. <laughs> I suppose not. <laughs> oh, thank you very much for listening. Have a good day. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> there you go.